Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Battle Round on a foggy, yet not too chilly, Saturday morning here in Baltimore. I'm Paul Valley, as always, your host, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Zach Goodman. Zach, how are you on this foggy Saturday morning? Yeah, it is. I, I couldn't see, like, 10 feet in front of me going down the road, so it's yeah. kind of... Kind of I, scary one. I, I, I pulled out of my neighborhood, and the traffic light that's probably two, 300 feet away, couldn't see it. Couldn't see it. So a uh, little little detrimental getting here, but we both made it unscathed. Hopefully the fog will burn out a little bit by the time we get out of here around 12, 1230 today. But we're not here to talk about traffic and weather. We're here to talk about baseball and the winter meetings just ended this past week. The Orioles, of course, their only action, much like every year, was came in the Roll 5 draft. Uh, Orioles haven't done anything, really, in the winter meetings as far as big moves are concerned since 2010 when they traded for J.J. Hardy and for Mark Reynolds. Those were two big moves. Both were key cogs in that Orioles uh, 2012 run. J.J. Hardy, between 2011, his first two years with the Orioles, he hit 55 home runs. And Mark Reynolds, his only two years with the Orioles, hit 60 home runs in two seasons. So those were some good signings. But again... Orioles haven't done much in the way of acquisitions other than the Rule 5 draft since 2010. They did make two picks in the uh, Major League Baseball Rule 5 draft. Mac Soroller, 25-year-old right-handed pitcher from the Reds and nephew of former Oriole and former number one overall pick Ben McDonald. And Tyler Wells, a 6'8", 26-year-old right-handed pitcher. They took him from the Twins. The Orioles also made three picks in the minor league phase. They took Ricky Ramirez, a 24-year-old right-handed pitcher from the Twins, who's allowed only four home runs in 99 and the third innings pitched uh, in his minor league career. Uh, Chris Hudgens, a 24-year-old catcher from the Royals who has some good pop. Uh, and Ignacio Felice, 21-year-old right-handed pitcher from the Padres who has walked 4.7 per nine innings pitched in his career. Doesn't have really high strikeout numbers either. Um, I mean, he averages about a strikeout an inning, but I wouldn't say that he's been a dominant pitcher, so the walk's kind of scary. But these are all five picks. So, uh, Zach, you have a bit of a scouting report on all five of these guys. Yeah, so as far as uh, Max Scroller goes, Max Soroller, I don't think we know how to say it, but uh, f- a fifth rounder in 2017. His so. um, I, Somebody that he's related to um, hit me up on Facebook and said oh, cool. it, it okay. was Sir Roller, pronounced S-E-R hyphen O-L-E-R. Okay, got it. Yeah, they said it in the Rule 5 draft, like scroller, so I guess everyone's kind of off the same page. But fifth rounder, 2017, 25 years old, as you mentioned, the nephew of Ben McDonald. He hasn't pitched yet above A+, so a little bit on the on the less experienced side. He's 5-4 and four with a 3.69 ERA and a 1.1 one whip in 2019 and then overall I've kind of heard he's very average stuff but he does have a four pitch mix and uh, Mike Snyder the Orioles director of pro scouting has said he has a plus splitter a good fastball and a slider he can throw for strikes and also a solid curveball but I've also heard from a couple scouts that he really doesn't have incredible stuff but you know maybe a guy that can stick with them and I, I think that the profile is certainly something they'd like with that four pitch mix uh, going down to Tyler Wells he was a 15th rounder in 2016, 26 years old, like you said, 6'8". So he's an absolute monster on the mound. Um, he has not pitched in 2019 because he was coming off Tommy John surgery, but he should be ready to go and healthy for spring training in 2021. Um, he has pitched all the way through AA, and he probably would have been in AAA had he pitched in 2020. Um, instead, you know, 
there was no minor league season, so he didn't get that experience. But he probably is a AAA, maybe even major league talent at this point. Um, he does have a plus changeup, two solid breaking balls. So that's you know again the four pitch mix, and you know he has that solid fastball as well. Um, he went ten and six with a two point four nine ERA and a point nine five five WHIP with nine point one Ks per nine in twenty nineteen. So again, solid numbers, especially the strikeout numbers. We've kind of learned that Mike Elias likes to look for those guys with the high strikeout numbers for sure. Uh, moving on to Ricky Ramirez, taken in the minor league portion. In the minor league portion, obviously, the Orioles get to keep everyone they select. You don't have to send them back. There's no rules that go along with that. So another 15th rounder in 2017. He's 24 years old. Again, hasn't pitched above A+, but he's 2-2 two and two with a 3.8 ERA and a 1.336 whip. And again, 10.5 Ks per nine in 2019. So another guy just gets a lot of strikeouts, pretty low whip there, and a, uh, you know, a solid ERA. And a guy who probably profiles as a relief pitcher going down the road. Uh, going on to Ignacio Feliz, he was signed in 2016 out of the Dominican Republic for $85,000. He's 21 years old. Uh, he was 2-4 and four with a 4.4 ERA and a 1.465 whip in 2019. And he actually hasn't even pitched above A-. minus, So he's very, very inexperienced. And like we said, only 21 years old. So he's got a while to go. And finally, Chris Hudgens. Uh, you talked about him being a catcher, but he can also play first and third. Uh, 16th rounder in 2017. 24 years old, 254 average, nine home runs, 762 OPS in 2019. So, you know, decent numbers there. Has a lot of pop, as you mentioned, and he has not played above A ball as well. So, again, those guys in the minor league portion, the AAA portion of the draft, more on the inexperienced side. So, that's what I got on those guys. Yeah, and when you and I talked about the Rule 5 draft, you were really excited about Tyler Wells. This is a big dude who has a big arm, but again, he had the Tommy John surgery, but he should be healthy. So uh, you and I look a little bit excited about him, not so sure about Max Ciroller. He is, again, the nephew of, ben, of former Oriole and current Madison analyst uh, Ben McDonald. So there's a good pedigree there, to say the least. Do you hear this? I do hear that. I have no idea what that is. That's, that's what I was hearing last week. There, there's there's something in the background on this. I have no idea what it is. It just sounds like a, a a guy giving an ad. Yeah. But it's very faint, but I can hear it. No, I just heard it too. In, in my head. So I have no idea what it is. I heard it all last week, and you looked at me like I had three heads. But we're going to soldier on here anyway. Hopefully our, our listeners can't hear that. I have no idea where it's coming from. Um, anyway, but then I'm glad that you said that the minor league rule five draft that they don't have to give these players back because I had no idea how that worked. And I actually had a, that question. We have, do, we do have John Mioli coming up later in the program today. He's going to talk to us about the Orioles winter meetings and those rule five picks. And I was going to ask him, I, I probably still will, um, where these guys get assigned and what the process is like for the minor league. It, it, it is crazy to me that you can leave a guy unprotected for the rule five draft, a minor leaguer in the minor league phase and have no chance of getting him back. That's that's crazy to me. Yeah, I'm not sure how the guys in the AAA portion of the draft are available. I'm not sure who you know how it how it discerns one from another guy. I'm just not really sure about that, and I don't really think there's too much information. The AAA portion of the of the draft is just there's not too much out on it. You really can't find it. But I'm sure if you dug you know deep enough on Baseball America, you could find it there. But uh, as far as the MLB portion, we know the rules. You have to keep them on your roster for 162 games. Uh, you can buy out their rights from another team, and you can make a trade uh, with that other team and, and for cash and, and and buy them out. But um, again, if you don't 
want to keep them on your roster. If you DFA them, if you try to send them down, they have to go back to their previous team. That's not the case for the AAA guys. And I believe uh, on the Orioles conference call when they were talking about uh, the guys they drafted, they said it was $24,000 to make a pick in the AAA portion of the draft. And I believe it's around 100000 or maybe a little bit more to make a, a selection in the MLB portion of the wait, draft. Wait, wait, wait. 100000 for the MLB draft, and how much for the minor league I draft? I believe it was 24000 okay. is what they said. Kent Qualls, I believe, said that uh, okay. on the Orioles conference call. Yeah. All right. Well, either way, this is the or- these are the acquisitions at this point in time that the Orioles make at the winter meetings. It's been that way. They've made a pick for 15 straight years. Second straight year, they've taken two players. Again, in, 28, in 2018, they had three Rule 5 guys, if you count Pedro Araujo, from the from 2017, they had three Rule Five picks on their roster. Um, I just, what is that? Where is that coming from? I I don't know. I, it's, 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 it's 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 definitely like an ad. Yeah, and it's it's, like, it's way more distracting. You don't have the sound up faintly on your computer, do you? No. Okay. It, it's it's way more distracting right now than it was last week. Again, gonna soldier on. Sorry for the interruption, folks. Um, but yeah, so the Orioles. They, again, they had three Rule 5 picks in 2018, two in 2019, two in 2020. Um, this team last year sent back both of their Rule 5 picks even before the shutdown in spring training. So literally they had gotten maybe to the third week of spring training, third or fourth week before they, and then before they sent back their Rule 5 picks. I don't know that there's going to be a spot for these guys. If they make it through spring training, I don't know that there's going to be a spot for them all season long on this roster. The Orioles have a ton of young pitching coming up. They have a bullpen that's pretty pretty solidified after pitching to a 3-9-0 ERA and being a top-10 unit in all of Major League Baseball uh, back in 2020. So that remains to be seen. The Orioles also lost two arms in the Rule 5 draft, and that was Gray Fenter and... Um, Zach Pop. And thank you. Zach Pop was the main one, and it, it slipped, his name slipped my mind for just a moment. But he was taken by the Diamondbacks and then traded to the Marlins. Uh, so the Marlins don't keep him. They have to send him back. But the Marlins are kind of – they were a fluke playoff team last year. They were that team that everybody talked about. Um, well, with a 60-game season, what if a team that wouldn't normally make the playoffs makes the playoffs? That was probably the Miami Marlins in 2020. So I think that they have – that they. They have the potential to keep Zach Pop for the entire season. And you think about a guy like Josh Hader, who the Orioles lost when they traded for Gerardo Parra. Was it Gerardo Parra or was it Bud, Bud Norris? I, I believe think, it was Parra. I, well, no, they, they traded Zach Davies. Zach Davies for Parra, for, for right, Parra. right, right. They traded Hader to the Astros for Bud Norris, and then the Astros traded Hader to the Brewers. And they lost a power arm in the back end of their bullpen. And you look back on it, and it doesn't change the course of the Orioles' history. But that would have been a nice arm to have in the Orioles' bullpen. And you kind of hope the same thing doesn't happen with Zach Pop. Of course, you want him to have a good career. You don't wish any ill will towards him. But you'd rather see him have that good career with the Orioles rather than with the Miami Marlins. Yeah, I want to start with Gray Fenter because that was kind of a surprise to me. I know Stan and I and and you were all talking about him a few weeks ago and how he was Rule 5 eligible for a little bit. People were a little bit scared of him being taken in 2019. But this is a guy who... 
I don't really think is going to make it through a full year. I would highly doubt it. I would put it at like 90% chance he's not going to make it through and he'll be returned. Um, and he is an older guy who hasn't made it past A-ball as well. I think he's about 23, 24 years old now and hasn't made it past A-ball. So I, I just don't think the experience is there. I'm not sure the stuff is there either. I really don't think he'll make it through. Uh, as far as Zach Pop goes, I did a sounding off a few weeks ago about how I really didn't even think he'd be taken. He was, unfortunately. Um, and, and like you said, traded to the Marlins. So it's it, trades are a little bit weird. You know, the Orioles traded with the Phillies for uh, Drew Jackson a few years ago and sent him back, I think, like six games into the Major League season. So even though trades happen, it doesn't mean that a team's for sure going to hold on to the guy. I do think the Marlins, as you said, probably would have a spot for him. You know, they're a team who... They're not in contention yet, and it's not like they're a team who can't spare a 26-man spot, especially to a guy they can kind of just stash in the back of their bullpen. And like you said, I hope he has a good career wherever he goes, but I, I hope he's returned to the Orioles, and I'd say it's maybe like a 50-50 shot at this point, You know, considering the Marlins were willing to give up something for him. Yeah, it's like you said, 50-50 shot. I think that of, of the two, we the Orioles probably would get back Gray Fenter. Almost Zach for Pop, sure. Yeah. Zach Pop stands the chance to... To remain, uh, he hasn't pitched really since the Tommy John surgery, so maybe he's a bit erratic, and they can't have. And maybe they are contenders, and they don't have a spot for him. I just you hate to lose an arm like that. They didn't protect him. They thought, what are the chances he gets taken? Well, the chances were pretty good because he got taken. So um, we are having more technical difficulties this week. Uh, we have lost the video. It says we're having trouble playing the video on Facebook. So I'm going to end the video on Facebook, and I'm going to try and. Uh, redo it here, and we'll see how if uh, if that works at all for us. Uh, in the meantime, we uh, the Orioles. We mentioned that the JJ Hardy and the Mark Reynolds acquisitions um, back during the twenty the twenty ten off season uh, were the last moves that the Orioles have really made that were of note uh, at the winter meetings. But back in two thousand seven. That's when the, the, the traction started happening for the Eric Bedard trade they, that netted the Orioles, um, Adam Jones, Chris Tillman, George Sherrill, and Kim Michalayo, uh, Cam Michalayo. Um But there were a couple of trades that didn't happen that could have also changed the, the course of Orioles history had they happened. And they were to be for Eric Bedard. The Orioles had inquired with the Dodgers and asked for Matt Kemp and Clayton Kershaw. And they talked to the Reds, and they asked for Homer Bailey and Joey Votto. Now, each situation there um, is each situation there is basically you get one guy who's a bona fide superstar in Clayton Kershaw and Joey Votto, and another guy who was really good for a short period in Matt Kemp and Homer Bailey, and more so in Homer. Ba Homer Bailey's pitched 14 years; he had three good years from 2012 to 2014, and he's been pretty mediocre at best and sometimes downright awful every other season of his career. Matt Kemp was the uh, he was the runner-up for MVP voting in 2011. In 2011, thank you. Thank you, saving me a little time there. He was a, the backup. He was the second-place uh, uh, vote-getter for the MVP voting in 2011 to Ryan Braun, and we found out later that Ryan Braun's 2011 was Fueled by performance-enhancing drugs that he tried to uh, tried to mess with it, blood samples and lie about this, that, and the other at the lab. And it was just a whole mess. And Matt Kemp even came out back then and said, yeah, take the MVP away from him and give it to me. And I, no, no hate. No hate. You know, you 
did it naturally. Uh, but he fell off a cliff. You know, he had a couple. He's had one or two good years since. But Matt Kemp ain't the Matt Kemp of 2011, and he's only he really hasn't been that guy in about six seven years. Um, so anyway, so the Orioles if they if the Orioles pulled off that deal with the Reds, they have Joey Votto to play first base. Chris Davis isn't here. And if Chris Davis isn't here, maybe Manny Machado is here. Maybe the Orioles aren't going through a full-scale rebuild right now. Conversely, if they pull off the trade with the Dodgers and they have Clayton Kershaw, that is not an arm that you acquire and don't build around. So maybe the Orioles sign Manny Machado, they sign some other big pitchers, and maybe the Orioles are on a run like the Dodgers have been on. Probably not, because the Dodgers spend $200 million a year to be on that run, and the Orioles don't have those kind of finances. But it's it's interesting to see those moves that could have been and think about what could have been. Now, look, the Orioles aren't going to take back the move that they did make. Uh, Adam Jones became arguably the best outfielder not named Frank Robinson in the history of the franchise. Tillman was a staff ace for five years from 2012 to 2016. George Sherrill was an all-star closer uh, before the Orioles traded him to the Dodgers for Baltimore native Steve Johnson, whose dad Dave pitched a few years for the Orioles. Uh, And for former top prospect Josh Bell, whose only claim to fame is a two-homer game against Cliff Lee in August of uh, 2011. So... That trade didn't pan out, but these were good players for the Orioles, including arguably the best, one of the best players in the franchise's history in Adam Jones. So the Orioles wouldn't take back that trade, but imagine having Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder, and when I saw this, this is the first thing that came to my mind. If they did get Clayton Kershaw, how would the Orioles have developed him? Because we all know about the, the late 2000s, early 2010s uh, Orioles pitching development. It certainly wasn't very good. So I don't know if the Orioles would have made him into the pitcher he became with the Dodgers. I mean, he's now one of the greatest of all time. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer for sure. Just won a World Series for the first time. So I'm not sure the Orioles would have done all that for him. I, I certainly think a talent is a talent, and he would have been very good in Baltimore. But I'm not sure he would have been, you know, first ballot Hall of Fame material. Um, as far as Joey Votto goes, Baltimore, you know, always a great place for power hitters, especially lefties. You know, that that power alley in right field would have been would have been fantastic for Joey Votto. He's been so good for so long. You know, he walks a ton. His on base percentage is through the roof. His OPS is great. Um, you know, just a fantastic player. Um, Matt Kemp, as you mentioned, you know, almost an MVP one year. He really has hit the ball very well for many years. It, it, the issue with Matt Kemp is his defense really fell off. Like it, it's it's not good anymore. He moved to the corners. Um, you know, in the in the past few years, he's been DHing a little bit more. So Matt Kemp, really really solid offensive talent. He's still hitting 29, 35 home runs in 2016. So it's it's it would have been a really nice talent again for the Orioles. They loved the power back then, especially. And Matt Kemp, I, I think, would have been a very very solid player for them. Um, but as far as Adam Jones and Chris Tillman go, if you think about the run the Orioles made from 12 to 16, those guys were, were such big parts, and I don't think I would, I would really want anything but what the Orioles got. I mean, Adam Jones was just such a big piece for this community, such a big piece in center field, and he provided an everyday player presence. You know, he could play the outfield, he could hit the ball, he could do really everything. And Chris Tillman provided the Orioles with a few really nice years, and and one of the guys that 
is is not really an ace, but he was the Orioles ace, and I think that there there's a lot of value to be had there. So as far as those two guys go, I think the Orioles ended up getting a good deal. It wasn't a complete flop, and Eric Bedard was obviously terrible for the Seattle Mariners. So they won and the, the trade. And the Boston Red Sox. Right. So they, they won the trade no matter what. I mean, that's not really the question here. But I, I think they, they maybe could have gotten it a little bit better, but I'm perfectly happy with what they ended up getting. Yeah, it, it, it worked out. It worked out for the Orioles, right. you know. Uh, uh, but and with the regime, with the 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 um the clenching of the purse strings uh, in this franchise, you have to wonder if the Orioles wouldn't be in the same situation anyway. If they would have still traded off Mamie's Hall, they probably would have traded off Clayton Kershaw. And he would have ended up with the Dodgers anyway. Um, but you also have to wonder what would have happened in a season like 2014 when. The Orioles won 98 games, and they made it to the ALCS before getting swept. If they had a pitcher like Clayton Kershaw, uh, if Manny Machado hadn't gotten hurt, or if they had a first baseman like Joey Votto, who would have played in the postseason and given them that extra pop in the lineup when Manny Machado was out, we had to depend on Ryan Flaherty to play every day in the postseason. Uh, you wonder what could have happened in 2014. Did the Orioles go on to win a World Series there? We'll never know. The world will never know. Uh, but it is an interesting thing to talk about, to say the least. Now, this is about the time when we would have Stan the Fan Charles on the program. Unfortunately, Stan... Guys, I, I guess we're not going to have a live video on Facebook today. I, I, I restarted it, and it just says we're having trouble. During the break, I'll get Glenn on the on the phone, and hopefully he can maybe help us out. Um, I, 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 don't, I tried to fix it. I don't know how else to do it. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, you're going to have to just listen to us on PressBoxSports.com uh, slash radio uh, to hear the program today. And I really do apologize. We were having some technical difficulties last week, having more this week. So, But if you are listening or you were watching on Facebook and you can hear us but you can't see us, please go over to uh, PressBoxSports.com slash radio and listen to us there. We have some great guests today. Like I said, unfortunately, Stan the Fan Charles is not going to be able to join us today. Uh, he has a memorial service that he thought was going to be this afternoon but found out yesterday that it's actually this morning right now when he's supposed to be on the program. So uh, we're, we're not going to force him to do the show with us. But we do have John Mioli at 10.50. We have Scott Merkin, who covers the White Sox um, for MLB.com, joining the program at 11.35. And we also have Orioles banter today, which is going to be the top five pitching seasons uh, in Orioles history. Uh, and for me, I'm not going to divulge my top five right now, but Zach and I were talking about this last night, and he wanted me to send him over my list. Uh, so, so that he wouldn't have the same one. I said, no, we're not going to do that because it's the top five pitching seasons of all time, not the top five other ones based on what Paul thinks. So I don't know his list. He doesn't know mine. We're going to unveil them together at around the 10, the eleven twenty hour on this show. Um, again, I do apologize if you were trying to pay attention to us on facebook.com and, uh, and, and can't get us because we're having trouble playing the video. Zach, if you can send out a tweet uh, letting people know that they can catch us at PressBoxSportsOnline.com uh, slash radio rather than just on Facebook right now, just in case. Um, I do want to remind you that the, that the Bat Around is coming to you live from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio and that the Bat Around is brought to you by Chesapeake Employers Insurance, your workers' compensation insurance specialist. And if you're missing your Stan the Fan fix, and I know I am, you can get it twice a week on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash 
Press Box Sports. Every Monday night, Stan and former Orioles pitcher Ross Grimsley talk baseball. And every Wednesday night, Stan and Gary Stein talk to a newsmaker in the sports world. If you missed Stan and Ross chatting with former MLB pitcher and pitching coach Dave Rigetti Monday night, or Stan and Bill Ordine talk chatting with Jake Joyce from Live Casino Hotel about the future of legalized sports betting in Maryland Wednesday. Find those shows via the videos tab at facebook.com slash pressboxsports or at pressboxonline.com. So, Zach, there were some interesting comments made during a Zoom meeting by Chris Davis over the winter meetings. And you and I were flabbergasted. It's always, I always love the opportunity to use the word flabbergasted. But you and I were flabbergasted by what Chris Davis said. And so were most Orioles fans, and so were their beat writers, it seemed. This is the quote. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not giving up, not throwing in the towel. I understand the club is trying to cut payroll, and I'm the one big lump they're kind of stuck with. But they knew what they were signing up for when they took the job. Baltimore Orioles fans' heads exploded. Rightfully so. Rightfully, and my head exploded. And I believe that my tweet uh, said that this was very short-sighted. Um, the Orioles signed up for the guy that led the major leagues in home runs two out of three years, not the guy who was arguably the worst position player in the history of the game right now. And then, and then I said, hey, Chris, if you don't like talking about it, don't suck. Because there's, there's, there's no other word for it. And I get nervous to say stuff like this, but I can't hold back the truth. Chris Davis sucks at baseball right now. And he has for a long time. And, he, and he has for a long time. His batting average has dropped from 238 to 221 to 215 to 169, went back up to 176, and then down to 115. Chris Davis Sucks. There's no getting around it. We're not going to sugarcoat it here. He is not a good baseball player, and he is a $23 million a year albatross elephant in the room. Yes, I just called him two different animals in one sentence. For, for this franchise, they, they're trying to move forward, and he's somewhat holding them back. Now, look, if Chris Davis was off the books right now, no, the Orioles would not be signing marquee free agents. That's not what this rebuild is about. But he's definitely hampering them. Maybe they go sign an Andrelton Simmons instead of having to go through into the bargain bin to get a shortstop who's probably going to be glove first, um, unless it's Freddie Galvis, who I don't think is a glove first shortstop, but maybe. Um, but w without Chris Davis on the books, they probably are able to do that. Look. Yeah, the Orioles knew they'd be on the hook for $161 million for over seven years when, when they signed him. He's absolutely right about that. And I think that's what he meant. I can't imagine he's so tone deaf that he thinks that, that what he said that, that what he said was meant to say, you knew what player you were getting. He meant you knew what, that you were going to be signing up to pay this kind of money. And I get it. Dude, you're tired of talking about it. You're tired of talking about it. If I sucked at this show, and maybe I do, I don't think I do, but if I sucked at doing this show, and I did it every week terribly, that's all people would talk to me about. Dude, why do you do this? Why do you continue to go and record the show every Saturday morning for PressBox Sports? Why are you on the air every week? You're terrible. You suck. There's a hundred different guys who could do this job so much better, and they would cost less. I don't cost much. 
by the way. But if I sucked at this, people would talk to me about how much I suck at this because this is what I do. Chris Davis, what you do is play baseball for a Major League Baseball team. And when you suck and you're making $23 million a year or 17 plus the extra buku bucks that you're going to get till you're 53 years old, like Bobby Bonilla, people are going to talk to you about how much you suck. That's the way it is. Cry into your tens of millions of dollars, man. And I like Chris Davis. Me too. I like Chris Davis. I have no ill will towards the man. He gives. He's given $4 million to charity over the last two years. He and his wife are stand-up Christian human beings. I like the Davises. But read the room, man. Read the room. You can't make comments like that. You can't go on a Zoom meeting during the winter meetings with the teams that, with the, with the beat writers that cover the team and say the Orioles knew what they were signing up for. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. If the Orioles knew that you were going to bat 196 from the, the, from the day that you signed that contract and 167 over the last three years, they would not have signed that contract. They would not have offered you that contract. You'd be the Red Sox problem because they needed the first baseman back then. Or the Texas Rangers. You'd be back home in Texas and you'd be their problem. But you're the Orioles problem. And you know that you're the Orioles problem because all anybody does is ask you about it. And he called, and, he called himself a lump. Yeah, you so call, you call he, yourself a lump. He knows. Right? <laughs> he's he, he's got to know. And, and again, if you're tired of it, you don't want people to harp on it, get better. Get better. Learn to bunt. Learn to beat the shift. Learn to hit again. Like I said, I get it. It's hard. But much like the Orioles signed up for this with you, this is what you signed up for as a Major League Baseball player who's the highest paid player in the history of the franchise. If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, this is all people are going to talk to you about. If you're not used to it by now, get used to it, bub, because as long as you're getting $46 million over the next two years, this is all people are going to talk about, Zach. Yeah, I, I have a lot of the same feelings as you. And, and he said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not giving up. I'm not throwing in the towel. And my question is, why? You've made the money. You know, you're going to keep making the money. It's not like you're not going to you know, have all of the money if you if you retire right now you're going to be getting paid until you're 53 years old i mean it's not like you're going to lose out on that much and he already has a lot now and that's great that he gives some of it to charity i really i really appreciate that i think it's great but you know you're bad everyone knows you're bad people are going to keep telling you you're bad and you're going to say no i'm not giving up and i don't want to go out on a sour note that was another one of the comments he had i don't want to go out on a sour note it's been a sour note for five years it's already been even if even if chris davis were to have a somewhat decent year where he hit you know slightly above the Mendoza line and he hit maybe 15 home runs people would still remember what this guy did for the past five years it's been a sour note this is not nothing you can do can really change anything now it's it's as far as it goes with Chris Davis nothing he really can do at this point will change anything he's just been awful for so many years and it seems like he finally realizes it but he still doesn't want to go anywhere and it just doesn't make any sense now, maybe the bigger problem I have with Chris Davis is the fact that he's still taking playing, playing time away from guys that really deserve it more. 
I know he's getting paid, so they have to kind of keep him on that roster and they have to play him. But there are so many guys in the Orioles organization who are not going to get chances because he's taking up a 26-man roster spot. There are only 26 guys on each roster, and every single one of them, besides Chris Davis, has earned being there. And that's the problem. Chris Davis has not really earned his spot on the team anymore, but yet the Orioles are so... They're just locked into that contract, and they can't get out of it. And that's that's the only reason he's there. And that's the problem I have is that he is taking away playing time. And, you know, it, 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 to say that this is what the Orioles were signing up for, we all obviously know that's untrue. You covered that pretty well. And, you know, it, like you said, too, he's not trying to get better. You know, it's never we never see a change in the stance. We never really see anything that makes Chris Davis different year to year. And Mike Bordick actually had some comments on this, which I thought was pretty interesting because Mike Bordick is not a guy to speak out on this stuff. He's been calling Chris Davis the crusher, and you know he, he's been really on the Chris Davis train for still the past four years, but it finally seems like Mike Bordick has reached the breaking point, and he had this to say about it. He said... There were a couple head-scratching comments by Chris Davis. I think the thing that got me was the fact he said when he came back for the second spring training, he didn't feel the same as he did in the first spring training. And I think, unfortunately, there's a track record with Chris Davis's work habits. I think a lot of us want to see Chris Davis come out of this at some point, but it's never going to happen because of his work habit. And that is a strong quote from a guy who's definitely been a supporter of Chris Davis for the past four years, and I think that sums up Davis pretty well. Yeah, uh, you look at it. He came into spring training last year like gangbusters. And actually, guys, real quick, I do want to give you a bit of an update. I think it's just an issue with our computer because I just checked the Facebook live stream uh, on my phone, and we're live. We're, we're recording cool. live. So everything looks like it's good on that on that end. So hopefully it's just our computer that's having the issue. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, Chris Davis showed up to, to spring training in 2020 like gangbusters. He was hitting well over, he was hitting like close to 400, had yeah. nine walks, three home runs, only a few strikeouts. And then they had the shutdown. And he didn't work during the shutdown. And he came back, and Mike Bordick said in that article that his bat speed wasn't the same. He looked lethargic. He looked like he didn't care. And this goes back to when he said he was working with Scott Coolball all offseason a few years back to get better. And then Scott Coolball said, We didn't work. We didn't work. He, wow. uh, we, we, we didn't work at all. And then he says, uh, and then Jim Palmer on the air says, maybe he needs to change, his, change up his stance, maybe, op- maybe close up his stance a little bit, and he does it for one game. J- just just to, to spite him. To, to spite him. Yeah. And then goes back to regular Chris Davis watching 90-mile-an-hour fastballs right down the middle of the plate for strike three. I, if he puts in the work, and, and Bordick said in the article, in this game, it doesn't matter what age, but specifically when you get older, you have to work harder. Dude, I'm 36 years old, and my body, I can't eat certain things. If I drink four beers watching the Ravens game, I, I need to work out like a fiend for a week to get rid of that. My body doesn't bounce back like it did when I was 26. I'm, I'm two years older than Chris Davis, and I know this. He's a professional athlete making over making $161 million over seven years. you got to put in the work, man. you got to put in the work. And I... And again, I get it. It's hard. And you have three little girls at home and a beautiful wife. And you have other interests. And I I understand. I understand. This is your job, man. The reason that you're getting paid as much as you're getting paid is to hit 40 home runs a year. What you're doing ain't cutting the mustard. Dude, you couldn't, you would, you would not have a job Anywhere in baseball, you wouldn't be playing in the independent league 
with the with the with the numbers you've put up. Maybe for four years now. Maybe but, for four years. Now. Yeah. You you go back. Yeah. He hit he hit two. I'm sorry. He hit he hit two twenty one. I, I said it was two thirty. He hit two twenty one in twenty sixteen with thirty eight home runs. And an eighty six RBIs. He had a good year. Home run and RBI wise, the batting average was down. But after that, 215, 196, 176, or I'm sorry, 169, 176, 115. It, it's, it's been four years, man. In a season, by the way, in 2020, where he said he didn't have a fair chance. Didn't have a fair chance. Uh, uh, who? Uh, what? Nobody had a fair chance. It was just, right. Um, the world doesn't have a fair chance right now. We're in the middle of a damn pandemic, man. You, I didn't have a fair chance. Cry me a freaking river, you big baby. I mean, he's had a fair chance for the past three years when he's had the best job security of any person ever. So, there you go. He fails 90% of the time. 88.5% to be exact. That... Dude, nobody can work anywhere with a fail rate like that and keep their job. But this guy has job security because the Orioles are handcuffed. They're not a franchise that can just absorb $23 million. And do I expect him to retire? Absolutely not. Would you? Would you you walk away from $46 million? I I can't see myself doing it if I were in that situation. But if I I look at it from Davis' standpoint, I say, Orioles are in a rebuild. I don't fit here. I'm done. Yeah. But maybe myself personally, maybe not. Yeah. I just, I, I don't, there's not going to be a solution to this. Those comments alone make me think he should be cut right now. He won't be. He won't be because if the if this season is prorated, if it's another truncated season, the Orioles play him, pay him a prorated rate. Um, but if it's not, they have to pay him. If it's not, and you have to pay him 23, $17 million. Everybody says $23 million because that's what the math works out to. He's getting $17 million this year. He's getting $17 million next year. And then he has a ton of deferred money, again, that will pay him for the next 19 years. If it's a... F- I'm sorry. It's relax, don't do it. It's playing in the background. right? Relax, don't do it. Anyway, um, if, if, uh, if, if it's a full season, if it's a 162-game season, the Orioles might cut him. Because you have to pay him regardless, right? You have to pay him regardless, and you might as well pay him to go away. But if they can save some money, they're going to keep him. And the only way they're going to save money on him is if it's a truncated season. So it's it's a wait-and-see approach. I didn't expect him to be on the roster this coming year, but Michael Elias squashed that back in September. I don't expect him to be on the roster in 2022. I don't expect him to finish the season with the Orioles, but... Who knows, man? We're close to the end. I we're, think we're, we're really close. Gosh, and two years left. We had this conversation with Stan a, a couple shows ago now that he said, you know, back back at the end of the season, he said, I don't think Chris Davis is going to take another at-bat for, for the Orioles. And it may still be true. I mean, he, he could go through spring training and the Orioles could decide to cut him after that. We'll just have to see. But I don't think it's – I think the end is near. I think we're really getting toward it. And uh, I, I think we've all been hoping this is going to come for a little while now. It's, it, it's been a long, uh, pretty bad path for Chris Davis. Well, at this point in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio here in Baltimore, we are going to lay off Chris Davis, hopefully for the rest of the show. Probably not, because we might ask John Mioli about him. But uh, we're going to lay off him right now. Uh, and we're going to move on. Orioles, 
they uh, they traded away Jose Iglesias. They need a shortstop. There's a few shortstops on the market. Veteran options, Andrelton Simmons, Danny Echevarria, Freddie Galvis, amongst others. They didn't make any signings during the virtual meetings. When we do talk to John here in about 10 minutes, uh, we're going to ask him if there was some groundwork laid towards acquiring a shortstop. Uh I would have to imagine they at least reached out to yeah. a few agents. They almost had to. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. If you're going to be signing a guy in the next six weeks, because, folks, believe it or not, we're a little a little more, not even, I think we're about nine weeks from spring training. Not even. That's crazy. You know, spring training is uh, two months from Wednesday. So it's coming. It's coming fast. You know, I can't believe it's been almost three months since the season ended. You know, it doesn't feel like it. But spring training is fast approaching. And the Orioles need a shortstop. Uh, they have Richie Martin, Pat Vileka, Ram- Ramon Urias, uh, possibly Taron Vavra, possibly Yomer Sanchez, who can do the job, uh, especially if they bring back Concer Alberto. Maybe Yomer would slide over. They want that glove somewhere in their infield, but he could also play third base. Um, if you, Zach, had to be a betting man and place a bet on who would be the starting shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles on March 31st, 2021, or April 1st, I can't remember. Uh, who, who do you think it's going to be? Man, I, I really want to say it's going to be Freddie Galvis because that's personally what I think I would want for the price. I think it makes the most sense for the price and for the talent that he brings to the table. But I really think of Danny Echevarria. I really would put all my money on him. And I know we talked about this last show, and you said that's probably the guy you think as well. It just The writing is on the wall there. He's just such... A perfect profile for what the Orioles are going through right now. He's going to provide that great defense for your pitchers. He's not going to hit a lot, but the defense is really just going to set him apart from from Galvis. I know Galvis is a fine defender, but he's not Adini Echeverria. Echeverria has one of the best gloves you can find, probably up there with Jose Iglesias. I mean, it's probably almost that good, and that's a guy the Orioles, I think, would personally want to target. So that's that's the, that would be my guy if I was a betting man. Well, when I looked up the stats before last week's show. Uh, Actually, of these three guys, Iglesias has the highest career fielding percentage, 985 at shortstop. Then it's Andrelton Simmons at 981. Simmons is great, too, yeah. Then it's Adeni Echevarria at 979. Look, man, I've I've been around. You were were just a young pup during the, uh, you still are, uh, during the dark ages of the Baltimore Orioles. So you, you don't really remember... Cesar Torres and Luis Hernandez, Davy Cruz, Juan Castro, Freddie Bynum. Orioles have a long tradition of excellence at shortstop. Starting with the Luis Aparicio, then moving on to Belanger, Ripken, Bordick, Tejada, Hardy, Manny for a little bit. Uh, that's, a, and that's a spot that's going to be shored up in the next few years by the likes of a Gunnar Henderson, Anthony Servadeo, Jordan, Jordan Westberg, so the next wave of, a, of great shortstops is coming to Baltimore. This is one of those gap years, right? Uh, Iglesias was a great fit for this club, even though he only played, I think, 22 games to shortstop last year. I really want Andrelton Simmons. And it's not because I think that's the guy who puts the Orioles over the top. I want the defense. I don't want to watch a guy who's going to get out uh, 75% of the time. And I think that, that that Simmons can probably hit about 280. He hit 297 last year. No power, no home runs. But he's never been a big, big powerful guy. His career high in home runs was 17. And that was back in, I think, 2013, uh, his second year in the league. I want that guy. He can pick it. 
He can be a good veteran presence uh, on this ball club and in the clubhouse. And look, the Orioles saved about five and a half million dollars uh, by not retaining Renato Nunez and by trading Jose Iglesias. And especially in the deep freeze that this pandemic has caused across Major League Baseball, Andrelton Simmons is about a five and a half million dollar player. I would like to see those funds allocated towards him um, if they're going to go the route of because uh, they have to get a shortstop. You're not going to go in the season with Richie Martin, who didn't play, who hasn't played in over a year. Uh, you're not going to go that route uh, with him. So, and you're not going to put that Pat Vale Pat Valeka can play shortstop in a pinch. He, you're not going to play him every day. And, and you would do a one year deal to clear this up for Simmons. One year, the same thing that they did with Iglesias. One year deal with an option Fair for enough. the next year if he earns the, the option for the next year, and then. Even still, if he plays well enough and you like what you see from Richie Martin down in Norfolk, then you trade him at the deadline. I'm okay with that. And, and maybe at that point, Mason McCoy is ready to come up. Or maybe at that point, Adam Hall, who I still think is a couple years away, maybe he's proved himself. Or maybe Taron Vavra has said, hey, I, I've been playing shortstop down here at Norfolk and I'm ready to go. Th- that remains to be seen, but I... I what I want is what's best for the Orioles' young pitching staff. And I think Andrelton Simmons is what's best for the Orioles' young pitching staff. And I also, like I said, I don't want to tune into a game and watch a Danny Echevarria go three for 22 every week. I, I don't I don't want to see it. I wonder what Ruben Tejada's up to these days. Get him out of my life. Get him <laughs> out of my life, man. Uh, it's, boo you. Paul Yanish? I mean, we should make some calls. Uh, Paul Yanish is out of the game. He's uh, he, I think he's coaching over at Rice. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Call call a couple of guys who are out of the game. Yeah. Let's 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 bring them back into the fold and see what they can do for the Orioles. Look, we got to get a break uh, before we get John Mioli on the uh, on the program. I uh, just want to remind you that every Monday through Friday, Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer bring their pragmatic and irreverent approach to Baltimore sports via Pressbox's Glenn Clark Radio. Watch the show at Facebook.com/slash/PressboxSports. Listen to PressboxOnline.com/slash/Radio. You never know who might pop up on GCR. This week, the guys caught up with Pat Ricard, Ben McDonald, Sal Palantonio, Bradley Bozeman, and more. Find those interviews today in the Glenn Clark Radio Week in Review feature at PressboxOnline.com. Headed to break. When we come back, John Mioli from the Baltimore Sun. Glory Days Grill fall winter seasonal menu is now available for dine in, dine out, on the patio, or to go. It's a new season, so enjoy new flavors. Try their new shrimp appetizers, homemade meatloaf, impossible cheesesteaks, and more. They're open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. From the Glory Days Grill family, stay healthy and positive during this challenging time in our community. For more than 40 years, K&S Automotive has been repairing, restoring, and maintaining foreign and domestic vehicles with a focus on exceptional workmanship and customer service. Everything from oil changes to major body work. Call K&S now at 410-235-6600 or go to knsimports.com. That's K&S at knsimports.com. Looking for a simple holiday meal? Try Chick-fil-A Catering. From Chick-fil-A nuggets to mac and cheese, enjoy a variety of tray options sized perfectly for your get-together. Order through the Chick-fil-A app and bring smiles to your family gathering. Availability and order requirements vary. See restaurant for details. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? (sighs) Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son... 
We're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was, and his daddy before him, like you and me, and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. <laughs> Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. If it's happening in Baltimore sports and beyond, it's happening on Glenn Clark Radio. New Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen. Appreciate so. Trey Mancini. Thanks for having me on, guys. Glad to be back on. Ravens linebacker Matt Judon. Appreciate y'all. How y'all doing? Ravens kicker Justin Tucker. Thanks for having me. Adley Rutschman. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Coach Mark Turgeon. How you guys doing? Heston Kerstad. Thanks for having me. Joe Burrow. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Marlon Humphrey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coach Mike Loxley. Thanks for having me on. He is J.K. Dobbins. Thank Thank you for having me. I had a great time. The great Ray Lewis. Always good to be on. Dickie V, Dick Vitale. Lynn and Kyle, two diaper dandy. What's up, fellas? Hey, what's going on, Ed? Lynn and Kyle are live Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon, and archived anytime. Watch Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and listen to PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Glenn Clark Radio and Drew Forrester's DrewsMorningDish.com have partnered up to collect coats and clothes this holiday season for helping up mission. There's never been a more difficult time to take care of those who need it most in our community. Thankfully, Great Eights Memorabilia and Jerry's Toyota and Chevrolet have partnered with us for an awesome collection drive event. We'll be at Looney's Perry Hall Monday, December 14th from 6.30 to 8.30 for a pregame tailgate party before the Baltimore-Cleveland showdown. Joining us will be Ring of Honor star Michael McCrary, who will be taking socially distanced pictures and signing autographs for anyone who donates coats and clothes. That's Looney's Perry Hall Monday, December 14th for our pregame party and collection drive with Michael McCrary with your thoughtful donations to the Helping Up Mission. The latest edition of PressBox is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Mountcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. PressBox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. Also, you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. All right, welcome back to the Battle Round with your host, Paul Valley and my co-host, Zach Goodman. Zach reminded me during the break that we forgot to do his sounding off segment, so we are going to do that right before Orioles banter after we come back from our second break. And I told him not to let me forget about this particular one because it's a good one. They're all good ones. Zach does a great job with this segment, but he, uh, I did forget to do this because we always do it right before Stan comes on, and no Stan this week. It slipped my mind. Sorry, buddy. We'll get we're good. It. We're gonna get it. We'll, we'll, we'll get a, we'll get a fit in here. Uh, on the line with us right now, he is the beat writer for the Orioles for the Baltimore Sun. His name is John Mioli, and he's joining the program today. John, how are you, man? I'm doing well. What's happening over there? Uh, not too much. We've been uh, having some technical difficulties the past couple weeks, but we're we're getting through it, and we're 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 doing well here. So, uh, on your end, how was the virtual winter meetings? Was that easier or harder to cover for you this year? Um. Definitely easier in a lot of ways, which isn't to say that it was better. Um, you know, I think because the Orioles aren't necessarily always newsmakers uh, at, at these meetings, it's a great challenge for me to say, okay, I'm going to be at this place with these people for four days. And, you know, it's the offseason. The Baltimore Sun is spending a lot of money to send me 
there and food is expensive at these convention centers and you're putting up in a hotel and flying all over the country you have to make it worth it so it's a good challenge to myself to find stories that that i feel like make it worth it to be there this year obviously there wasn't that kind of challenge um honestly and it's a good challenge to have the bigger challenge was you know i'm trying to i'm trying to be a you know, be a good dad over here and still be on the Zooms and, uh, and and write stories in a timely manner while trying to balance that. But fun times, good problems. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know, uh, John became a first-time parent uh, during this offseason. Your, your, your child's about what, about five, six weeks old at this point? Uh, yeah, seven weeks tomorrow. Seven weeks tomorrow. So congratulations to you, John. That's a, a huge milestone in your life. I'm sure you're loving every bit of it. Uh, however, yeah. do, do you miss the chaos of the hustle and bustle of being at the winter meetings? Uh, not, not, not terribly. Uh, very fortunate to go there um, and get the chance to do that. It, it's always eye-opening to see to see all of the people that you see, you know, whether it's for a day in spring training, three days on a road trip, they come to Baltimore, you see them a couple times. It's really fun and eye-opening to see all those people in one place and just get the get to catch up with people and, and, and by the same token to see, you know, people you've known for years who are scouts, who are climbing front offices, who are, who are making it themselves. It's a good occasion for that, but it is kind of, it is just, a, you, you walk, you land, your plane lands and your chest gets tight and you're wondering what's going to happen, who's going to do this and what's this person going to report that you have to follow. And it's not necessarily the case for the Orioles anymore because they're pretty quiet in terms of making actual moves and letting those moves get out before they make them. But it, it's an experience that I think that that is worth something, but but maybe not always worth the the stress that you put on yourself to, to make it happen. Well, and, and that makes me think you spend six months sharing a press box with all of these other Orioles beat writers and reporters. And uh, when's the last time you saw in person another Orioles uh, reporter, journalist, writer. Yeah, it would have been whenever the last home game was uh, here at Camden Yard. There were a few of us that were, a few outlets were, were at every single home game this year, um, regardless of whether, you know, COVID stuff. There was, and not everybody traveled, but it's more the people outside the beat on, that cover other teams that, that you really just kind of realize it's been a while since you've seen them really since last year's winter meetings or maybe once or twice as before spring training got shut down. That's the thing that's, that's the thing that's most jarring. These are people who, who you could talk shop with. They have similar experiences to you. They know when when you, 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 you could see them. And, you know, I remember seeing last year, seeing, you know, Red Sox people and they're just, you know, they have their head in their hands waiting for Mookie Bet stuff to happen. You can sympathize with it, and it's just stuff like that that, that you don't really get at home. It's very isolating. Yeah, well, the, the Orioles, they, they're never really all that active. I'm sure they lay the groundwork for future deals at these winter meetings, but they never make the big splash moves at the winter meetings, not since 2010, uh, which was before your time here. And really, where they're most active is in the Rule 5 draft. They took two players. Uh, in the in the major league phase and three players in the minor league phase, it took Max Sirola and uh, Tyler Wells. Now, do these two guys in Sirola and Wells do they come into spring training as potential rotation pieces, or do you think they ultimately end up ticketed for the bullpen if they make the team at all? I would say they're they're going to be in that rotation mix, but 
if we were sitting here after last year's winter meetings, you would have said the same thing about Brandon Bailey and Michael Rucker, and then they showed up to spring training in that same spot. They were they were firmly in that mix, and then Wade LeBlanc walks in, and Tommy Malone walks in, and all of a sudden, you know, the Orioles saw pretty quickly in spring training that as much as they like these guys, as good as they thought they might be, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to be a fit on their roster to keep these two pitchers for for as long as they're going to have to. Now, there are a couple of different factors this year. I think they're going to have a much more optionable bullpen this year. Um, some of the guys who are who are, who were fixtures last year were fixtures in the sense that not only had they been there a long time, but they couldn't be options at AAA. I think that's going to be a little more flexible this year, so maybe you can you know, flip one of these guys between the rotation and the bullpen. Um, and it struck me as a little noteworthy, but not really noteworthy when we spoke to Michael Elias to kind of simulate his winter meetings availability. He was talking about, you know, how every team, no matter whether they're, you know, trying to win a championship or just trying to get by, um, wants more starting rotation depth. And he mentioned John Means and Alex Cobb, and he mentioned, uh, you know, Dean Kramer and, Keegan Aiken, and he mentioned Bruce Zimmerman and some of the new guys that were added to the roster. He didn't mention Jorge Lopez. I, I think it, I'm sure he just doesn't fit neatly into a category. It was probably just an oversight, but it makes you wonder whether whether there might be a rotation spot or two that isn't spoken for. Because sitting here right now, you would think that it's Alex Cobb and John Means and Lopez and Aiken and Kramer and and those five guys have the inside track. But a lot can change between now and April first. Hey, John, how you doing? It's Zach Goodman. Uh, so we, we, we talked about the two pitchers the Orioles took in the Major League portion of the draft, but were there any other names you had heard they were looking at in the in the Rule 5 draft as far as infielders go or maybe catchers go or other pitchers? Uh, not, not, not really. Um, it, it seems like on the infield front, you know, I think they, they've, they lived that life with Richie Martin and he's still around. And I think that counting on someone to be an everyday or most day big league infielder without that experience is probably something that whether they learned from experience or knew it was going to be hard and did it anyways and don't want to do it again. It seems a little bit prohibitive on that front. Uh, also, you look around, I don't think I saw too many infielders who, who, who were taken. I don't have the list in front of me, but this is the type of thing I think, especially given the way that the game operates now, you want to just get these pitchers and get a look at them. And if they stick, then you have a big league pitcher on your staff that, that costs you a hundred grand. It's really, it's easier to do that. And I think you get a lot more value for spending more money and aiming a little bit higher with, with an infield or something like that. Well, the Orioles are certainly looking to find the next Johan Santana uh, with, um, with these uh, rule five picks. Now you mentioned that the Wade LeBlancs and Tommy Malone to the world came in walking into spring training and it kind of costs, uh, Barnes and Bailey their their jobs and had them sent back to their teams last year. With that in mind, what are some uh, veteran free agent pitchers that the Orioles could be attracted to? The main guys that stick out to me, Jose Urania, uh, Cole Hamels, Colin McHugh, Chris Archer. Are those names too big at this point for the Orioles, or do you see them looking at those guys? Well, those are the names that are going to be at the top of a lot of teams' lists, and I think it's going to be interesting to see for a lot of these players, whether they might want to take, you know, maybe a surefire opportunity to be in a starting rotation on a team that's probably not going anywhere and then not really have that much of a say as to where they get traded in July versus whether they just want to say, okay, I'm going to go to 
you know, they might not have a clear spot for me now, but I'm going to sign with just to throw out a team. The the Nationals. I don't know. I don't know if their rotation's full up or not. I know that they have a lot of. Uh, I know that they're certainly top heavy on that front. But say say if you're Chris Archer and you say, well, I could sign for one year with the Orioles, and I know they're going to trade me in July. As long as my arm is still attached to my body, they're going to trade me. And I don't know where that's going to be. I don't know what situation that's going to be into, but they're going to trade me. Or you can sign with a team who you want to spend a full year with and get comfortable with and, and compete with them from, from opening day on. So I think that's going to be something that's really, that's really um, kind of indicative of how this market goes. Is the market going to be there for those types of guys? Uh, another thing on that front is the Orioles only gave out one big league deal last year, and it was to somebody who was younger. It was Cole Stewart, who ultimately didn't pitch because of he opted out for COVID. But I think that they're going to go above and beyond and maybe spend a little extra money and maybe give that big league deal where they would rather give a minor league deal if it's somebody who's younger and could be here a long time. So I think all those things might lean against one of those bigger name starting pitchers in the free agent market. Well, and speaking of Cole Stewart, I don't believe that he has a team yet. I could be wrong about this. Is he another option that the Orioles could pursue again if they have a full season and the pandemic is starting to become more in our rear view? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's anything preventing them from doing that. I know there were some roster machinations at the end of the season to, you know, I think there was an opportunity to bring him back and he might have had to, I'm not really sure how it worked exactly, but it didn't seem like there was any ill will. Now we only, you know, it's not like there was as much time to talk about the people behind the scenes as there was in being past years. You don't run into people at ballparks or in the hallway and hear, oh, here's what happened with the Cole Stewart thing. It seemed like it was all pretty above board. I don't think anybody begrudged him given his uh, pre-existing condition or, or in living with diabetes to say, oh, you know what, this Marlin stuff is freaking me out. I'm out of here. Um, but if there was ill will on either side, I'm sure that that would preclude that, but I'm not sure I've heard anything to that end. Well, yeah, they're certainly going to be in the market for somebody. So I think you can, at this point, it's just taking some names, throwing them against the wall, and see, seeing which one sticks. So, uh, and they're kind of in the same situation regarding who's going to play shortstop. Um, did, was there any traction uh, made towards getting a deal done with a shortstop at the winter meetings? I'm sure that they that they reached out and talked to some people, but did you hear anything when you talked talked with Mike Elias over the Zoom meetings about their their progression in acquiring a shortstop? Uh, not specifically, he, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of meetings taken and, and, and groundwork laid for stuff like that. He, he basically said though, you know, he was asked what kind of player, whether he'd rather have somebody like Jose Iglesias, who's going to, you know, show up at spring training as a starter at shortstop and just move on from there. Or if it's going to be more of a rotation type thing. And he mentioned, you know, there are players who would on the free agent market who would command that starting role and not really have it be up for debate there are also you know younger players maybe non-tender guys who they like a little bit more and they would probably still give you in that category he also mentioned trades for people that hadn't really solidified themselves elsewhere and who you know who could grow into a starting shortstop role with the Orioles without that skill and hasn't necessarily done it elsewhere I think that's the most interesting one because obviously you know teams don't you know post on their website hey we got this 26 year old shortstop who we don't really have room for and this is a list of people the Orioles could trade for. But I think that is where, you know, if I was on the outside as a fan, that would be where I was more. That would be the most exciting option. You know, someone who, I don't know what the Orioles would have to give up in a trade like that. But 
just to get someone who might be able to grow into it and have another person who you could look at, you know, come opening day and say, all right, I know that person might be here when, when, when this thing turns around. Their infielders and the minors are a few years away. You know, Rylan Bannon, not a shortstop. Um, but he was added to the roster this year. I know they, Michael Elias mentioned Yalmer Sanchez is someone who, who might get some shortstop looks at some point in spring training as well. But until these homegrown shortstops that they've taken in last year start coming through, I think it might be helpful to have somebody who might be a multi-year solution versus just a, another rental. Yeah, and we heard a few weeks ago a rumor that came out about the Orioles and Yasiel Puig. They tried to get him last year before the 2020 season started. That didn't go through as he signed with the Braves, and then he had COVID. But we also heard that rumor again this year. Is there any traction to that, and have the Orioles reached out to him at all? Uh, honestly, no idea. It, it makes very little sense to me on the surface. Uh, this is a team that, you know, the Orioles have like eight outfielders on their 40-man roster. Um some of them who were better suited at first base and DH, but those places are already pretty full up as well. So the idea of them spending money at a time when they clearly don't want to spend money, even a little bit of money on a player who would be an upgrade, but wouldn't really necessarily not move the needle, but would it be good enough to take chances away from these players that they're trying to see if they're here for the future? It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, Puig doesn't really make a lot of sense to me either, John. Um, now, who, a player that does make a lot of sense to me is a guy like Andrelton Simmons. And I know that he made $15 million in 2019. He was making a fair chunk of change last year. Um, the Orioles saved $2 million by uh, DFAing Renato Nunez. They saved $3.5 million by trading away Jose Iglesias. The climate of baseball right now we're in a deep freeze in the free agent market. Uh, players aren't going to be making as much money. It would it would seem anyway as they did in years past. And Andrelton Simmons seems like he's about a six million dollar a year player to me at this point in his career. The bat's kind of falling off. He's on the wrong side of thirty. Is could they take the money that he saved from Nunez and Iglesias and put that towards a player like Andrelton Simmons? Or you think that's a little far fetched? I mean, they, they certainly could, but when you talk about a player who, you know, might not be able to hit the way that you'd want a $6 million player to hit, still play good defense, maybe run a little bit, those are the types of players, you know, you could, depending on what you think of Richie Martin, you could say, well, Richie Martin could do that. He's going to make six hundred grand. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a calculation they're going to have to make. I think that at this point in, this, in the offseason, the Orioles are going to do what the Orioles would have done, even, you know, even when Dan Yuskett was in charge and this team was trying to, push for a playoff spot. They let this stuff shake out, and then there's not always, but there's often a match between a player and a team when all the chairs are starting to be spoken for, and it just starts to make sense. And then you could say, all right, are we willing to go to, you know, $6 million, like you said, for for this player, or are we just going to go with what we want? Or because there's no other alternatives for that player other than, you know, a deal where he's not guaranteed to start, Maybe do we go in with four with an option like they did with Jose Iglesias, something like that. So I think that while he's probably going to be the first name that anyone looks at on the shortstop market to say, all right, the Orioles need a shortstop. Who's the best shortstop? I think that every other team who is looking for a shortstop might end up at the same conclusion. And if you're, if you're the player in that case, you're probably going to go with a team that has a little more 
chance of competing this year than the Orioles. Yeah, my, my guess would be, and I've thought this since the season ended, is that Simmons is probably going to end up with the Yankees to play shortstop for them for a couple of seasons. That's that's my guess anyway. Now, a couple of guys, guys who played shortstop for the Orioles in the past but didn't get re-signed this, this year, Hanser Alberto. Mike Elias said that he'd be open to bringing back Alberto at a lower rate. What would you put the chances of that happening at? And is there something that could similar that could happen with Renato Nunez if he remains jobless in the spring training? Um, I would put those in like... <clears throat> the 10 to 20% range. Um, Renato Nunez is probably, probably closer to zero. I mean, it's not, you don't take the step of, of outriding somebody before arbitration, even not even entertaining that, that course of action. If, if they're part of your plans. Um, and honestly, the purpose that Renato Nunez would serve, even if he, somehow ended up signing a minor league deal and just waiting his time at AAA would be, it would be ultimate disaster insurance. You know, then you, you, you would, at that point you wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have Trey Mancini at first base or DH theoretically. You wouldn't have Ryan Malcastle at first base theoretically, DH theoretically, you know, any of the outfielders, Anthony Santander could play DH. So you really have to have a lot of things go wrong to need Renato Nunez. So mm-hmm. if you're going to pay him any amount of money, that's probably out the window with Alberto. You know, everybody who got non-tendered, I think all the GMs in the league basically went <clears throat> said that night that they're open to bringing those players back. I'm not sure there are many instances of that happening. Um, I would have to go back and look, but we're not talking about a large amount of money that Hanser Alberto would have been uh, commanding in the arbitration process. And the Orioles still didn't want to engage with that. And Andrew Alberto and his people probably know that this is what a representative deal for a player that at his stage of his career is. And if the Orioles aren't even going to get close to that, they're probably just going to look elsewhere. And I would venture to say that he might be able to get it. Yeah, I, I would imagine that somebody who's hit 375 against left-handed pitching the last two years would be able to find a job somewhere. But again, we're in a deep freeze right now. So a lot of guys are going to be without jobs maybe even into spring training at this point. Uh, we were talking about Chris Davis, John, a little bit, and I know that everybody's tired of talking about Chris Davis at this point, but he made some some kind of odd comments in his uh, virtual meetings with you all, basically saying the Orioles knew what they signed up with, saying he didn't know the exact direction of this rebuild. Um, and the Twitter, the Orioles' Twitterverse basically exploded when this happened, uh, what did you make of those Chris Davis comments? Were, were they as tone deaf as they seemed, or are we just taking these out of context? I don't think it's out of context. I think with the contract thing, you know, I don't think with the contract thing, when he basically said they knew what they were signing up, they were signing up for, he was talking about this front office and that they took this job knowing that Chris Davis was going to be on this team for, Gosh, how long would it have been at that point? Four more years? Three more years? Five more years? It's, it's just, however long it would have been, they knew that Chris Davis was going to be under contract and a part of this team for that long, and I think that both parties probably knew that it was going to be a bit of a hindrance to what they're ultimately trying to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, this year might, might be the year that it becomes a problem that he's there, given that they have other people who could be playing first base. They might need that roster spot elsewhere but 
I think it was just a pretty frank acknowledgement that like, you know, it's not like this is a now problem. This is a con, you know, when Michael Elias took this job in November, 2018, Chris Davis's contract was awful and he's going to be stuck with it until the second that it expired. And that remains to be true. Now, as far as the stuff about the rebuild, I, I don't really know what to make of that. I mean, he asked some questions when he was kind of rhetorically saying, you know, is this going to be like, they're not going to start trying again until it's only the players that they brought in. I think that's a fair question. I don't know that we have a real answer to that, but it's just weird to say that it's just weird for a player who knows, you know, should know pretty well what's going on to say he doesn't understand the rebuild as a whole. Are there aspects of it that, that you could question and could be wondering? Yeah. But would Michael Elias come out and say, if somebody asked him that, it's like, yep, so all these players that I didn't draft, you're basically just here as place, placeholders. I don't know that he'd say that. So it was just kind of odd. I didn't really <clears throat> I didn't really know for sure what he was going to say when he when we got this availability sent to us, um, and it sure didn't disappoint in terms of there being a story out of it. So we know about Chris Davis's struggles at the plate. We know he hasn't been quite as good in the field in the past few years, but does Chris Davis bring value in the locker room? Do the players around him kind of respect his knowledge and ask him a lot of questions about how they can make their game better? Um, I think that once the lock, the clubhouse turned over, there started to be a little bit more of that. Um, I know when Mark Trumbo was there, he was somebody who tried to be a big, you know, presence in the batting cage around the, around the turtle shell on the field, uh, you know, in the dugout, in the clubhouse for all the, for all the players. I think that with Chris Davis, especially once a lot of the veterans who, you know, from the Buckshell Alter era cycled out, I think there was a little bit more. I think there was a little bit more room for him to be that guy. And I think, you know, we're talking about, gosh, was it, was it last year when he didn't have a hit forever? It all blends together. But, but, but when, but I remember, you know, hearing about how everyone was really pulling for him when he had that hitless streak. And I just thought to myself, you know, I'm not sure that would have happened, you know, two years ago, if Chris Davis didn't get a hit for 60 something plate appearances, I'm not sure it would have been supportive with all those veteran guys who were trying to put together one last playoff run to say, hey, you know, you could do this, big guy. It would be a lot more like, hey, come on, what are you doing? Um, I think that there was a little bit of that kind of advice stuff. Again, we're not in there this year. We're not seeing anything. Chris Davis wasn't really with the team that much um, that much down the stretch in 2020 just because of his knee issues. But I think that generally he's the type of person who would more rather just go about his business and keep to himself, and I think that's something that, might not always lend itself to to being 100% available to, for stuff like that. Well, it, it certainly uh, has been a struggle with Chris Davis on this roster, and this is something that the Orioles are going to have to deal with one way or another for the next two years. Uh, and, he, and until he's 53, he's getting paid over a million dollars every year until he's 53 after his contract expires. So uh, something the Orioles are going to be dealing with for a long time here. John, we know you're a busy man. we got to get a break, so we're going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining the program. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you soon. All right, have a good one. Thanks, fellas. All right, man. Take care. And that was John Mioli, beat writer for the Baltimore Sun for the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, and a little note on Renato Nunez. I think he'd be a great fit in, like, Tampa Bay. That's a guy, that's, uh, Tampa Bay seems, would seem to be a place 
for a guy who's going to hit 240 with 30 home runs because they don't have a ton of firepower and they can slot him into DH because I don't feel like their DH position was too productive for them last year. I I think that that's a place where Renato Nunez could really flourish and play for a contender, not have to be the pressure of being the big power hitter in the lineup because they have other guys like Hunter Renfro and Brandon Lau. Um, and I, I think that would be a good spot for him. So that remains to be seen. I think Nunez will have a job. A guy that can hit... 30 to 40 home runs in a major league season is going to find a job somewhere. Not going to be with the Orioles because there's just too many of him here already. Um, we got to get a break, guys. Uh, when we get when we come back, we're going to do Orioles banter. We are going to do our top five pitching seasons in Orioles history. But first, actually, no, yeah. When we get back from break, Zach's going to sound off first. All right. Until then, uh, enjoy these commercials. Glory Days Grill Fall Winter Seasonal Menu is now available for dine-in, dine-out, on the patio, or to-go. It's a new season, so enjoy new flavors. Try their new shrimp appetizers, homemade meatloaf, impossible cheesesteaks, and more. They're open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. From the Glory Days Grill family, stay healthy and positive during this challenging time in our community. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. Looking for a simple holiday meal? Try Chick-fil-A Catering. From Chick-fil-A nuggets to mac and cheese, enjoy a variety of tray options sized perfectly for your get-together. Order through the Chick-fil-A app and bring smiles to your family gathering. Availability and order requirements vary. See restaurant for details. If you can't be there for Baltimore football games this season, the next best thing is to at least be with each other virtually to talk about them. With Pressbox's Project Game Day, I'm Glenn Clark, and I'm with you at halftime of every game. And then I'm joined post-game by a panel of experts, including Ken Zalis and the NFL chick Sarita Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and post-game also at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is just the ref's fault all season long. That's Pressbox's Project Game Day every game day this season, brought to you by Wise Markets and the U.S. Army. If you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do that than the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where all of that can happen, and so much more. The Army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world, and to win. Ask yourself, What's your warrior? Go to army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? (sighs) Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. <laughs> Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. 
The biggest pro wrestling stars today and all time all have one thing in common. You've heard them on Jobbing Out. Brett the Hitman Hart. It's good to be on the show. Adam Cole. How are you guys doing today? Matt Riddle. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Broken Matt Hardy. Excellent. The bad guy, Scott Hall. Mm, hey, yo. Keith Lee. Appreciate you guys having me, man. Bill Goldberg. My pleasure. Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. Mick Foley is with us. This is the greatest name for a wrestling show I've ever heard. MJF. I'm glad you're happy I'm on this show because I'm freaking miserable. Yeah. Le champion! Chris Jericho. Le champion. AJ, Aaron, Brandon, and Glenn are talking pro wrestling every week on Jobbing Out. Find it at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio, iTunes, and SoundCloud. You know, we really do not give this music that comes, that plays every time we come back from our second break. We don't really give this one as much credit as we give Glenn Clark radio music that we get after our third break. But this is this is some good music to come back into too. It, I, I feel and I'm a little energized by that that guitar riff coming back from our second break here. Maybe we should like mix them together. We can do like a Glenn Clark and the Bad Around mashup. Uh, I, I I don't know. I wouldn't know how to, I wouldn't know how to do that. I wouldn't know how good that would sound. Uh, you're asking me to do things that are better reserved for DJ Pauly D. Um, we're gonna do, we're gonna move on to Orioles banter here in just a minute. But first, Zach, the long-awaited sounding off segment from this week. You have uh, you have some words for the Phillies. And what do you got for me today? Yeah, Phillies, it seems like they're one of the teams that have been in a rebuild for a long time now. They haven't been anywhere above third place since 2011. It's been a long time. They've kind of said, okay, we're going to rebuild. We're going to have all these prospects. They're going to come up. We're finally going to make the playoffs again. It seems like they say it every year. And now they, they haven't gotten there. So now they're saying, okay, we're looking to trade number two starter Zach Wheeler. We want to cut costs just like every other team around baseball. But this is a team that I, I think if you trade Zach Wheeler, this is about as far down as you can go. It's just it's it's the worst thing possible they could do for this team right now. They're paying Bryce Harper three hundred million dollars, and they said when they signed that contract, we're going to try to compete. We're going to try to go out there and get a World Series trophy. We haven't done it in a little while, so we're going to try go try to do it. And Bryce Harper's the guy. When you commit to paying a guy that kind of money, you got to compete. Trading your number two starter is not at all how you're going to get there. He, Zach Wheeler's been great, and the Phillies don't have a lot of good pitching. The bullpen's been okay. The starting rotation outside of Aaron Nolan Wheeler has not been very good. They don't really have a straight-up ace. I mean, they, they really don't have a Max Scherzer or a Clayton Kershaw. So to trade away one of your more reliable pitchers absolutely makes no sense to me. I get costs are a little bit tight in this pandemic, but it doesn't make sense. And then John Middleton, the Phillies owner, came out and said, this report is bogus. I wouldn't trade him for Babe Ruth, which is just kind of... It's Zach Wheeler, man. I mean, okay, we like Zach Wheeler. He's a that, good player, That's but just kind of a dumb statement in the first place. I mean, that doesn't even make any sense. But it's, it's not a, a trade the Phillies would benefit from at all because they've been in this rebuild for so long, and they've been saying we're going to make the playoffs year after year after year. And when you commit to signing Bryce Harper, you've just got to go for it at this point. You've got to keep acquiring talent, not trading it away. That's my opinion on this. Dave Dombrowski, they hired him as the president of baseball operations kind of out of nowhere this week, and I'm not sure I like that hire either. That's probably a topic for another day. But it's it just a weird – the Phillies are a very weird franchise, and I, I feel like they're, they're, they've kind of been in a tough spot for a while now, and I, I'd like to see them get out of it because they are a team, when they're at their highest, can be a very good team. Yeah, the- <sighs> 
they're in the midst of an identity crisis. Is, yeah, ba- is basically exactly. is basically what you're saying. They're in, and the, they're in the middle between rebuilding and winning. And, well, that's, and, that, and you, you can't be in that. Spot. They already went through their rebuilding phase for a few years, like 2015, 16, 17. They were they were in their rebuilding phase. 2018. Right. You signed Bryce Harper to 13 years, 300 million dollars. You're not rebuilding anymore, guys. I, I, I'm going to make it real clear for you. You need to be in contention. Bryce Harper didn't sign with you to win 75 baseball games every year. You're, you need to be a contender. You didn't sign Joe Girardi to be your manager to win 75 games every year. Right. He's not a rebuilding team manager. This no. is a guy who wants to win and expects to win. And the same with Bryce Harper. He expects to win. Bryce Harper's not going to be very happy if they start winning 60 games a year. Now, if if you feel hampered by the contract, you feel handcuffed by it, then then why why'd you give it to him? Why why'd you give it to him? And and, and why did you sign Zach Wheeler last year? Why why the the bottom line is the Phillies it's Philadelphia, man. Like you have the money to go get these players. Go get some players. Go. You don't need to sign a marquee free agent. Bring Cole Hamels back for a year. See what he can give you. But you need to add to your bullpen. Your bullpen was awful last year. Really, really bad. It was. It was the ERA was approaching eight in sixty games. Your bullpen was awful. Go get some relievers. If the Orioles, who lost one hundred and fifteen and one hundred and eight games in back to back years, can have a top ten bullpen. The Philadelphia Phillies can have a top 10 bullpen. Go get some relievers. Right. And I get they're in a tough division. I mean, that makes sense. You've got the Nationals to play to play against. You've got the Mets who are going to be pretty good. So, I get it, but you got to spend money to win. They got to do it. Yeah, the, the the second you signed Bryce Harper, you said we're contenders. We got to move on to Orioles banter. We only have about 10 minutes to do this, about 9 minutes really. Uh, so, we're going to do our top 5 pitching seasons in Orioles history. I'm going to we're going to I'm going to start I'm going to give my number five, then Zach's going to give his. At number five, top five pitching seasons in the Orioles' history, I have Jim Palmer in 1972. 21-10 and 10 with a 2.07 ERA, 18 complete games, three shutouts. He had a 1.051 whip, which was the second lowest of his career. A 5.2 war, finished fifth in AL Cy Young Award voting. That is my number five top pitching season in the Orioles' history. All right, for me, I'm going with Hoyt Wilhelm in 1959 for the Orioles. 15-11, and 11, 2.19 ERA, an ERA plus of 173. The average is 100, so really good numbers there. He had a whip of 1.128. Uh, he struck out 139, only walked 77. Uh, so just a really great year and an all-star year for Hoyt Wilhelm. Yeah, and, and Zach and I did not tell each other our lists because um, we didn't want to have anybody change anything. If we had the same players. You'll be happy to know I do not have Hoyt Wilhelm on Sounds my good. list. Uh, number four, Mike Cuellar, 1969, 23-11 with a 2.38 ERA, 18 complete games, five shutouts, 290 and two-thirds innings pitch, a 1.005 whip, 4.4 war, won the AL Cy Young that year, Mike Cuellar, 1969. All right, for me, it's Mike Messina in 1992, 18-5, 2.54 ERA, and 157 ERA plus an 8.2 war, which is actually the second highest all-time for any Oriole pitching-wise, and a 1.079 whip. Absolutely amazing numbers, and really probably an underappreciated season. Mike Messina in 1992 was my number three. 
He was my number three. It was the lowest ERA, fewest losses, most innings pitched, second lowest whip, most complete games, and most shutouts of any season in his career. His 8.2 war wasn't just the second highest in Orioles history. It was the second highest in the history of the entire franchise dating back to St. Louis. Finished fourth in Cy Young voting that year. So who do you have at number three? I have Mike Cuellar, 1969, same as you. So gotcha. it, I, I think we, we, were, we figured we were going to be pretty close. I mean, it, it's hard to pick these out. But anyway, as you said before, 23-11, and 11, 2.38 ERA, 1,005 whip, 149 ERA plus, and of course that Cy Young. So just an incredible season. And again, I think a lot of these are really underappreciated. Mike Cuellar is just so underappreciated. He was so good for a long time. There is a very underappreciated guy on my list, but we're not going to get to him just yet because at number two, I have Jim Palmer, 1975. Now, a lot of people have him at number one. I don't. Uh, 23 and 11, 209 ERA, 25 complete games, 10 shutouts, which led the majors. One save. He had a save in that, in that year. 323 innings pitched, a 1031 whip, 848 Point four war is the highest in the history of the franchise, dating back to St. Louis, back to their St. Louis Browns days. Won the Cy Young. It was his second. It, it was his first of two in a row, and his second of three in a four-year span. He only won the three. Only he won three Cy Young awards in a four-year span. Those were the three that he won in his entire career. Who do you have at number two? I don't think you would have guessed this one, but I have Jim Palmer as well. 1975. And again, I think there's a lot of seasons you could pick for Jim Palmer. You had one of them before. I mean, he had so many good seasons, but I also have uh, 1975. I won't run back through the numbers. You presented it pretty well, but I will say some other seasons for Palmer. You know, 1977, he was fantastic. Mm-hmm. 2011, 2.91 ERA. Uh, 76, 22-13, uh, 2.51 ERA. His ERA plus was up to 169 in 75, 130 <coughs> in 1970, and then uh, 131 in 1977. So um, clearly, you know, did some really, really great things. And we know all about Jim Palmer. He's one of the Orioles' all-time greats. But um, the ERA Plus is some of the highest in Orioles' history. So that's fantastic to see. Well, and his for me, the toss-up for number five was Jim Palmer in 1972 and Jim Palmer in 1977 um, because he had a higher war. In 1977, he won a Cy Young award. No, he didn't win a Cy Young in 1977. He won it in 70, 73, 75, 76. Cy Young runner-up Cy, Cy, Cy Young runner-up. He had a hell of a year. But I went back and forth, back and forth, and I came to the realization that he legitimately was just the better pitcher. It, he, and he also had like 50 more innings pitched in um, 1977. But his, his overall numbers, second lowest whip of his career in 72. Now, before we do our number one, there are some honorable mentions here, some guys that we left out. 1980, Steve Stone won 25 games in an AL Cy Young. ERA right around 338, I want to say. Um, 19, what is it, 1979, Mike Flanagan won 23 games in an AL Cy Young award. Uh, you look at the 2007 season from Eric Bedard when he won 13-5 and with a 316 ERA. Um, and this is, this is in a time, uh, and his ERA, I mean his whip, was 1.88, led the, led the majors in hits per nine with just seven hits allowed per nine. Also led the majors with 10.9 strikeouts per nine that year. So 20, 2007 for Eric Bedard. And, and again, this is in a time where pitchers 
they aren't going as deep into games. You know, they, they aren't getting 40 starts. They aren't throwing complete games because we're worried about arm injury. So really good year from Eric Bedard in 2007. A lot of good guys. Mike Messina had a ton of great years for the Orioles. There's a lot of guys we could choose from. My number one pitching season, and I have to believe you have the same one. I have to believe Most it, likely. Is Dave McNally in 1968. Right there with you. 22 and 10, a 195 ERA, 18 complete games, five shutouts, a point, not a one point, a point eight four two whip, finished fifth in MVP voting, did not receive a Cy Young award, a, a Cy Young vote. Not he didn't just not win the award, he didn't get a vote. I had written down how did he not win Cy Young? I'll tell you how he didn't win the Cy Young because Denny McLean went. Bananas in 1968. Denny McLean won the Cy Young Award and the MVP. And the MVP. He went 31 and six. Wow! With a 1.96 ERA to win the AL Cy Young and MVP awards, Denny McLean received every single vote for Cy Young. They only voted. I, I, I think they like. I don't think there was first place, second place, third place. I, it was just he got every single first place vote. There were 20 votes. He got every single one of them, and rightfully so. He went 31 and six. McNally's ERA was better. McLean was a 1.96. McNally was a 1.95. McNally didn't even make an all-star team that year. I, I, that's incredible. I mean, it's such an underappreciated year. I mean, we talked about underappreciated guys. He has to be one of them. I mean, the guy won so many games. And, I mean, just a, another stabilizing presence for the Orioles in the 70s. They were such a good team back then. And, you know, um, that, that year with a 1.95 ERA, for a starter to have a 1.95 and pitch as much as he did, that's just extremely, really difficult to do. To have a 1.95 ERA and throw 18 complete games? Incredible. It, it, it's absolutely phenomenal. It is by far and away. The, the I'm looking at this, and I thought Jim Palmer in 1975 with that 8.4 w- war was going to be it for me. I, I, I immediately put him at number one, and then I'm looking through the list, and I see Mike Cuellar, and I'm like, I mean, not Mike Cuellar, I see Dave McNally, and I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Look at that season. And, and I thought, how did he not win the Cy Young? Who was, it better have been somebody who pitched like a 113. 31 wins with a 196 ERA. Okay. It's hard to beat that. Yeah, that's, that's arguably the greatest season in the history of the game. 31 wins, at least in the modern era. 31 and 6 with a 196 ERA. It, it's, it's a shame that they both pitched in the American League. It's a, it's a yeah. shame. I, I, Dave McNally. Didn't win the Cy Young, didn't make an all-star team, and finished fifth in MVP voting. Fifth! And yeah. didn't, he took home zero hardware for the best season pitching-wise in the history of the Orioles and St. Louis Browns franchise. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. I mean, to, to think of the fact that he didn't even make the all-star team, I mean, that just probably goes to show you how underappreciated he is, and a lot of these Orioles pitchers are. I mean, the Orioles have had a rich, rich history of pitching throughout the you know the 70s, 80s, 90s. Unfortunately, that's kind of gone off track a little bit. I want to throw an honorable mention out there, though, and it's a modern-day honorable mention in Chris Tillman in 2013. This is an era where the Orioles really didn't have much at all as far as good pitching. And Tillman in 2013, 16-7, 3.71 ERA, uh, ERA plus of 110. So the numbers were pretty solid. And 7.8 strikeouts per nine, which is pretty solid for a starter. That's higher than most of Jim Palmer's entire career. Well, so Jim Palmer's never a strikeout Never pitcher. a strikeout guy. But, ju- but just to say, Chris Tillman you know, had a pretty high one that year. And I think it's underappreciated because... 
the Orioles really never had good pitching throughout the 2010s. They, they rarely had a guy who won 16 games. Dylan Bundy got close a few times, but I think that's probably the best season an Orioles starter had throughout the 2010s. So I had to throw that out there. And one of, the, one of these seasons that I've actually seen with my own eyes. So there you go. All right. Zach's going to give us a little bit of a livery while I get Scott Merkin, who covers the White Sox for MLB.com, on the line. All right, the latest edition of PressBox is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens' Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more, helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Mountcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. PressBox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores, and you can always find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. All right, and joining us on the show right now, he covers the Chicago White Sox for MLB.com. We have Scott Merkin on the line with us. Scott, how are you today? Good, how are you doing? We're, we're doing very, very well. Uh, before we get into it, what was this winter meetings, this virtual winter meetings experience like for you? Well, it really wasn't an experience. I mean, you know, it came down to it was, uh, I think it was kind of by need only type of thing, and it was... Uh, very different from the regular winter meetings. My back feels better, first of all, because you spend, you know, four days standing for hours and hours in the lobby talking to people, looking for little bits of information and that kind of thing, doing interviews. And this one was done from the comfort of my home. But trust me, I miss it. I missed it. I really did. You, you don't realize, you know, going through the travel thing and everything else is great until it's not there for a while. Of course, other people have bigger issues, obviously, in life than not going to winter meetings. But it really wasn't anything, like, scheduled. Like, there wasn't, at least with the White Sox, you know, Rick Hahn talked twice. He talked after they traded for Lance Lynn, and he talked after they signed Adam Eaton. But unlike the winter meetings where you have, like, a daily update, there was none of those. So I think it was kind of left. I'm sure there were things beyond the reporter scope that went on, you know, somewhat daily. But it was different for us in terms of how we cover it, you know, in years past. Well, I went to winter meetings when they were um, in D.C. back in 2016, and it's chaotic. There is a lot going on. There's there's meetings everywhere all day long. I went the entire week, and it was – I can understand why writers, reporters, journalists get tired of doing it because it's so much to intake. It's got to be so stressful to be running around those hotels for five days trying to talk to anybody that you can yeah, that was a that was a big winter meeting for the Sox. That was at uh, National Harbor, I believe, right? Yeah, and, the Gaylord, uh, yeah. It was right right before. I remember they were making a big deal because the MGM Casino was opening like two days after we left from the winter meetings down there. And uh, that was when the Sox traded Sale, got Moncada and Kopech back to begin the rebuild. And the next yep. day they traded Eaton and got Giolito, Lopez, and Dunning. And now they've traded Dunning to get Lynn and brought Eaton back. So it all kind of comes full circle. But... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on, and there's not a lot going on. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of awards. There's usually a manager's luncheon where, um, you know, the manage, each manager sits at a table with their, their beat writers, which is kind of funny because back in the day after he had done it for like two or three years, Ozzie Gian would come for his, like, each manager has an interview session, which they're doing next week, which is great. But, you know, they, they'd have a manager session scheduled for a half hour between like 10 and 5, you know, be, on Monday, Tuesday, and sometimes Wednesday. And Ozzy would get his, like, Monday or Tuesday and then would take off before the lunch and even so. Oh, pretty much the beat writers for the Sox on their own to the point where I think we, we didn't go one year because there was just no reason to, we just we just rested a little bit during that luncheon. But there is a, it's, it's a big schedule. It's a big event. I mean, it's a big event, not just for the major leagues, but the minor leagues, and it's a lot of fun. You get to 
you know, I don't know, a lot of fun, but it's, there's a lot of engagement with other reporters and everything else. So, yeah, it's, it's one of the many, many, many things being missed uh, right now. Uh, I, I'm sure of it. And you mentioned the, the big move that happened at the winter meetings was Lance Lynn. The, the Sox acquired him from Texas for Dane Dunning, who had a, who had a pretty solid uh, seven starts for the Sox in 2020, and Avery Weems. Uh, then they signed Adam Eaton back to be their everyday— you would imagine to be their everyday right fielder. We'll get to him in a second. Lance Lynn, is this who they consider to be a top-of-the-rotation piece, or is he brought in simply to complement the, di- the, the dominant duo of Giolito and Keuchel that we saw last year? Yeah, I think he adds to that top of the rotation. Yeah, he's certainly, you know, pitched more like a top of the rotation guy than a guy just filling out the rotation. That's that's a certainty. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, he last year they had Giolito, they had Keiko, and then they had Cease and Dunning and Lopez, and I think for a starter to Rodon. <clears throat> excuse me, to go through their rotation. Well, it came to Game Three of the AL Wild Card Series, partially because Keiko had one of his few bad outings in that second game of the series, and they couldn't quite beat Liam Hendricks at the end in game two. And they didn't have, you know, a great deal of confidence in anyone to put in that game three start. You know, Cease had had two really rough starts at the end of the year against Cincy and the Cubs. Dunning had struggled a little bit against the Cubs in his last start, but it, like you said, it pitched pretty well. But the bottom line is, both those guys are very young. You know, I mean, so, you know, they're, they're in developmental process. I mean, Cease has pitched two seasons, but has yet to pitch He's made 26 starts, so he's not even made a full season's worth of starts yet, really. 30 is 30 to 33 is like what you consider a full season's worth. And then Lopez had just, you know, he had a great year in 18, in 18 when they got him and has really struggled the last couple of years. So, you know, th- it was a bullpen, and they ended up using nine relievers. With Lynn, there's a long, a long way to go to say with Lynn, now you have at least three starters you rely on. And it takes a little pressure off guys like Cease, and Michael Kopech, who's coming back from injury and then opting out last year, electing not to pitch last year. And then, you know, Lopez is still in the mix there. And they may add another starter. So, yeah, I think it's a great move. You know, you, you got to give up something to get something at this point. You know, they're beyond the rebuild stage now. They're now, you know, hoping to contend. And not just hoping to contend, they'd like to win, you know, this year. I mean, it's not like, let's put it off to 22 or 23 as our target. They want to win a World Series this year. So, you know, you, you're going to have to start giving up some of your prospects if you're going to get key guys, and we're, I think we're really going to see that at the trade deadline if their first half is as strong as they expect. But I, I like the limit acquisition. He's been very steady the last couple of years and, you know, a perfect fit to, to add to the top three. You need, you need at least three good starters to get through playoff series, and I think they have that now. Hey Scott, it's Zach Goodman. How you doing? Um, Good. So how are you? You just talked about the the trade for you know Dane Dunning for Lance Lynn. It's obviously something the White Sox probably looked at as necessary to get to the next level and to probably you know bolster the rotation a little bit. So you said you you could see more of these trades coming. Is there anyone that the White Sox are talking to right now uh, as far as a trade goes or a prospect they'd be really willing to give up? Oh, you know, I think uh, there's more coming in sort of like the general big picture sense. Like not necessarily, you know, Tuesday of next week or January 13th. Watch, there's going to be a trade on January 13th. Now that would really be, I guess, I'd go play the lotto if that was the case. Or I think it's just more over the course of this year and next year, you're now looking where they are going to have to give up some prospects. I mean, there's certain guys that I think, you know, draw a ton of interest and they don't want to trade. You know, Michael Kopech, Andrew Vaughn, who's their number one prospect and one of the top prospects in baseball who's going to probably see a lot of time at DH this year, you know, for the, for the White Sox. Uh, you know, Nick Madrigal, they really like the skill set he brings in second base. But I think, you know, there are certain guys 
you know, one of the things that I, I've talked to Rick Hahn about over the years is really getting their eyes on all these guys, you know, and making sure they're trading the right guys, even the guys who are kind of secondary pieces like Avery Weems was in the, uh, in the Texas trade, because let's, you know, be real, Fernando Tatis was not the featured guy in the James Shields trade, and now he's an all-MLB shortstop. So, I mean, you got to make sure you every, every single person that needs to make a decision needs to see these guys and you make the right move. So, again, I don't, I don't know, you know, the list they have of where the cutoff is of, you know, okay, above this, we're not going to trade them for almost anything. Below this, we're willing to listen. But just in general now, whereas it was different from, 17, 18, 19, 20, even when they were accruing this young core and developing it, they're willing, I think, to make a little dent in it in order to improve the team in the interim. You talked a little bit about Dallas Keuchel. He was nothing short of phenomenal in 2020. 199 ERA and six wins and 11 starts. Was he better than advertised? And does a similar performance in 2021 almost guarantee his option is picked up in 2022? Yeah, I think he was very good, and he was very good for the clubhouse, too. He, you know, he really took kind of a leadership role from the start of spring training. I, I, you know, I know Bob Nightingale wrote about him, and we talked to him about it afterwards, that he had a, uh, a dinner for everyone basically in the organization in spring training out in Arizona back when you know, everyone was still together, I want to say in February, and you know, paid for the whole thing and got everyone together right from the start there. And you know, I think he's been a good pitcher, you know, barring maybe a, a you know a stretch here or there or a season here or there. Pretty much his whole career, right? With Houston, oh yeah. Atlanta started late, you know, two years ago. Last year started late, so he's probably got some freshness in his arm that he may not have had because of those two seasons. But yeah, I mean, you, you never guarantee anything. But you know, they they like what they had in him last year, and I know they like having him, you know, in the top three of that rotation again this year it's, it's a it's a good balance with Giolito and Lynn yeah I, I really like what they're featuring in their rotation assuming health for everybody now uh, moving on to their lineup this is a lineup. it's not just formidable there's a there's so much talent in this White Sox lineup but it's young and it's controllable and it has seemingly the perfect amount of veteran infusion when you think of Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal being in that lineup how does Adam Eaton add to this team well, you know, he's, I think he's got an 801 OPS career-wise against right-handers, so that's a huge part of it. You know, how much he plays against left-handers, I guess, will be dictated on how well he performs. You know, you have another very nice, I, I hate to say complimentary piece because it makes it sound like they're, you know, like kind of a throw-in, but Adam Engel is a gold-glove caliber defensive player. He's been nominated for a gold-glove, you know, already in his young career. He was the one who made, one who made the nice running catch to preserve Lucas Giolito's final out of the no-hitter last year. And he seems to be if kind of found himself another younger guy who's found himself offensively, albeit in a really you know abbreviated short season last year. But you know, if worse came to worse, an Eaton Angle All Adam platoon in right field would not be the worst thing. Um, but Eaton has been signed to be a regular right fielder. You know, I, I know Sox fans were looking at George Springer and they wanted George Springer, but I think the White Sox are looking at this with the money they have to spend as kind of a big picture as opposed to let's. Yeah, I guess you could do it you know, both ways. You could say, okay, we like the talent we have. We like the roster we have. It's pretty well filled out. Let's you know, trade for that starting pitcher, and let's just go all in on player A or player B, and then we'll just fill in with whatever we have left in the other spots we need. But I think they're looking for good players at all the spots they need, and Eaton was, you know, made sense in right field over maybe some of the other candidates so they could continue spending in other areas for the team. 
Yeah, and as far as the catching position goes in the lineup, James McCann has been there for a little while, and he's definitely been a uh, pretty formidable piece in that lineup, and he's definitely improved offensively, and it now seems he might be pretty close to a deal with the Mets. So how do they replace him, and is there any prospect or young guy they could use to do that? Well, it's going to be interesting because Grandal, you know, had a, had a good finish to last year, but, it, you know, by his own admission, I'm not speaking on a turn here, he said, you know, it was not a great season for him, but... Again, you know, Eaton didn't have a great season last year either. You wonder how much... Frank Manichino, the hitting coach, said something interesting to us recently in that he said he would have kind of gone crazy with no fans in the stands. He said he would have, he felt like he would have fallen asleep in the dugout with no fans. And you wonder, you know, to a more practical extent, how much that really did affect players and pitchers not feeding off that environment. And you're probably... Well, I shouldn't say anything, but there's a chance, let's just put it that way that there may be some time with that again, you know, this year, especially the way things are going right now in the country and with just looking at how sports are handling things right now. But, you know, you have Grandal. He's the everyday catcher. I know he likes to be behind the plate there, but you can't catch him 140 games if you play a full 162. So you have Zach Collins, who was their number one pick from a few years ago, who has struggled at the big league level but has never really got a consistent chance to play where they say, like, maybe a September, a couple Septembers ago, he did play pretty regularly, but still never gotten a chance where he was the guy. And they have him. They have a young man named your man, Mercedes, who's kind of become a folk hero with Sox fans, who you know can hit the heck out of the ball. He's having a good run in, in winter ball right now. And then Sebi Zavala. So they have three young catchers they could turn to for that number two spot. And they also could go add a veteran who, you know, probably not a, a high-end, not a high-cost veteran, but someone who could, if you didn't you know, have total, or if you're going to use the, Young hitters also in a DH mix with Andrew Vaughn, possibly. Then you'd also have another guy who you know could back up Grandal. But, you know, Grandal's a guy. McCann earned his money. He's going to get a multi-year deal. It so appears somewhere else, and good for him because he was a great fit. You know, I mean, you can tell, like, a catcher's now, and this is taking nothing away from Yasmani Grandal, but McCann caught Giolito almost exclusively. You know, Tyler Flowers caught Chris Sale almost exclusively. When the top guy in the rotation trusts you, you know you have you know a good thing going there. So McCann earned what he's going to get, and the Sox have to move on from there. Now, this is a team that has talent from top to bottom on this 26-man roster. There's, there's no doubt about that. At the forefront of that, leading the high-octane vessel, is Tony La Russa. Now, is this a guy who you think is the right guy for the job, or is this a matter of Jerry Reinsdorf writing what he considered to be a wrong back in the 80s and kind of forming his own personal boys club? Well, I mean, it could be a little bit of both. You know, I mean, Jerry Reinsdorf owns the team, right? So yeah. Jerry Reinsdorf, I think it was uh, <laughs> Paul Canerco who once said this in an interview that, you know, you go by the golden rule, those who have the gold make the rules, pretty much. So <laughs> right. I think uh, he has every right to hire who he wants. And let's, let's not forget, I think, in all the consternation over, he hasn't managed since 2011, and he's 76 years old, although he's been in baseball. Tony La Russa is one of the greatest managers in the history of the game. Oh, you know, there's no... There's no erasing that fact, and there's no reason to try and erase that fact. The man's won three World Series, I think six pennants, four uh, you know manager of the year awards, and let's just stop with the fact that he's a Hall of Famer. You know, he's in the. I was there when in that great class when he was inducted with Bobby Cox and Joe Torre and Frank Thomas and Greg Maddox, and I'm leaving one guy out on that, and I can't think who it was in that class. But there's one. There was one more guy John in that Smoltz. class. But I mean, he's a great manager. All the players we've talked to who have started speaking to him or have played for him, like Lance Lynn played for him as a rookie in St. Louis, really believes that he'll be able to handle this without an issue. You know, we have not spoken to Tony since he was hired on October 31st. So, you know, we'll see 
what he has to say as things get closer to the season. But, you know, I mean, this I don't think this is like a guy, oh, I know this is not a guy they hired with, okay, here's our manager for the next 10 years. So that's where it was a surprise, because when Rick Hahn talked about the parting of ways with Ricky Renteria, Rick Hahn sounded like he was looking for the guy who was going to take them through this kind of next wave, next generation. And, you know, we don't know if that's Tony or not, but I think for winning now, Tony LaRusso is a, is a good guy to have. Now, before we let you go, you mentioned earlier in the interview that they want to win a World Series right now. As this team stands right now, assuming health and progression, are they as much a contender as any for the AL crown and a potential World Series title? Yeah, I think you'd say yes right now, but we're also, today is what, December 12th, right? So there's a long way to go before the season begins. I mean, I, I think about the Cubs in 16, you know, they were who they were, and then like, was it beginning of March, I want to say, uh, they added Dexter Fowler out of the blue. And that made a huge difference that year, you know, to that team. I mean, I don't know if that, I mean, it's it's easy to say in hindsight, but maybe they don't win the World Series without having Dexter Fowler in center and the top of that lineup. So you just never know what teams are going to have. But I think as they stand right now, based on the team that was really, you know, one game out of, you know, a second or third seed last year in the playoffs, and I don't think too many games behind, Tampa at the top, maybe five behind Tampa at the top. You know, there's not one dominant team in the American League right now. It's certain, you know, the, the the traditional powers are good, but not like where you look at the Dodgers and say, well, there, you know, there's a big gap between the number two team and the number one team. So, I think it's anyone's to win in the American League. I mean, look at this: if, if the Sox get continued progression from the young guys and get improvement from the guys who struggled, you know, Yohan Moncada had a great year in 19, tested positive for COVID in the intake process last year, and then was never the same after that. You know, they need Aloy Jimenez's defense, assuming they keep him in left, which I think it's too early to move him to the D8 spot. You know, need his defense to continue to improve. You know, I don't know if Jose Abreu is going to match the unreal numbers he put up last year, but he's always been very good. So if he can stay Mm -hmm. at that level, that's good. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, work into it. You know, the young pitchers continue to develop. You find guys at the back end of the bullpen. But to make a long answer short, yes, I think they have every much of a chance to win the American League right now as anyone else. But, I mean, obviously, if Toronto signs Jordan Springer or, you know, I don't know, uh, Minnesota signs Trevor Bauer, you know, it it changes the, the complexion a little bit. As of December 12th, they're as good as anyone in the American League right now. Well, Scott, I think that uh, the extra rest for your back is going to help because I think you're going to be covering baseball games deep into October this year. I think (laughs) this is a a very good team that's young and is going to be very good for a long time. Uh, We we certainly appreciate you joining the program today. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you over the course of the season. Sure, anytime, guys. Happy holidays. All right, happy holidays to you too. Take care. Thanks. And that was Scott Merkin. Really great interview about the the White Sox. The White Sox are as fun and interesting a team right now as any team in baseball. It, it, I, I, I implore you to go look at their lineup. There's not a hole. There is not a hole in that lineup and they're and with the they're all young except for Abreu and Grandal and Eaton. These are all young, controllable guys. Not just in um they they have a couple of guys in the rotation, Giolito and and Cease who are under control. Their lineup has a bunch of guys who are under control. It's And Mancata had a down year. Yeah. And, 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 that's what's really incredible. And, and, and he still played fairly well. This team, Nick Madrigal, he, he does not strike out. No. He does not strike out. The dude just puts the bat on the ball. He's never going to hit 20 home runs, but man, can he hit. He, he could hit 370, 
380 yeah. in, in his prime. I, oh, I truly believe that. The, he is he's incredible. He 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 hits the ball to all fields. Yeah. He doesn't strike out. He just puts the bat on the ball. It, it's like what you would hope Hanser Alberto would be, where you, where you constantly make contact, except he makes contact with force and hits line drives all over the place. Really fun team, and I think they're going a long way, and I, I would not be surprised to see the White Sox win another World Series here in the next few years. I, I hope they do. I have a lot of respect for that team. Them and the Padres, I think are yeah. the, the, the AL and NL versions of each other. Oh, my so God, dude. Uh, can you imagine seeing Padres, White Sox in the world? It would be it. it. would be the most fun World Series of, like, all time. Yeah, it, it, it really it, would. It really I, would. I, and it would, be, it would be so nice to see young New representatives. Uh, I, I like the Dodgers, but I, all right, man, enough's enough. You got your the title. Yankees, the Red Sox. Yeah, it, like, it gets old after a while. G- give me, give me White Sox, Padres a couple of times uh, until the Orioles get there, and then give me Orioles, and I don't care who you put against them because they're they're gonna win it. Um, we got to get another break real quick. I want to remind you that if you can't be there for Baltimore football games this season, the next best thing is to at least be with each other virtually to talk about them with Press Box's Project Game Day. Glenn Clark is with you at halftime of every game, and he's joined post-game by a panel of experts, which will include uh, Ken Zalis and the NFL chick Sarita Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and post-game at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is the ref's fault all season long. Glenn and KZ will be with you for the Cleveland-Baltimore showdown Monday night. That's PressBox's Project Game Day. Every game day this season brought to you by Wise Markets and the U.S. Army. Do you need your fantasies fulfilled, or do you need your fantasy football lineup filled anyway? PressBox's own Ken Zalas is the number three-ranked fantasy expert in the entire country, and he joins Glenn and Kyle every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. for his PressBox fantasy football show. Listen to the show at pressbox, uh, pressboxonline.com slash radio, or watch the show and get your own fantasy questions in facebook.com slash pressboxsports. That's the PressBox fantasy football show with Ken Zalas every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. Brought to you by CCBC Wise Markets, Glory Days Grill, and the U.S. Army. All right, and just want to remind you, we are broadcasting to you live from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. We're going to get our final break of the program, come back and close it out with a little bit of Ravens talk. Since masks are a part of our lives now and probably will be for a while, we might as well wear masks that celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. PressBox is offering three different types of masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gaiter honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks. They're not CDC approved, but they are perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your favorite teams and being respectful of those around you. Get your masks right now at PressBoxOnline.com masks. That's PressBoxOnline.com masks to get yours now. If you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do that than the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where all of that can happen and so much more. The Army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world and to win. Ask yourself, what's your warrior? Go to army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? (sighs) Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, 
We're Royal Farm sub people, like my daddy was, and his daddy before him, like you and me, and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. <laughs> Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. Need your fantasies fulfilled, or do you need your fantasy football lineup filled anyway? I'm Ken Zales, and if you missed it, I was Fantasy Pro's number three ranked fantasy expert in the entire country last year. And I'm with you every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. for the PressBox Fantasy Football Show. Listen to the show at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio, or watch the show and get your fantasy questions in at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. That's the PressBox Fantasy Football Show with me, Ken Zales, every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. Brought to you by C. CBC, Wise Markets, Glory Days Grill, and the U.S. Army. Looking for a simple holiday meal? Try Chick-fil-A Catering. From Chick-fil-A nuggets to mac and cheese, enjoy a variety of tray options sized perfectly for your get-together. Order through the Chick-fil-A app and bring smiles to your family gathering. Availability and order requirements vary. See restaurant for details. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A-minus financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. The latest edition of PressBox is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens' Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Mountcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. PressBox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. Also, you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. All right, welcome back to the bat around here on a foggy Saturday morning. We're going to close things out, but before we do, since masks are a part of our lives now and probably will be for a while, we might as well wear masks to celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. PressBox is offering three different types of home team masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter that Zach is modeling for us. For some reason, he has it on inside out. Do I actually? Yeah, you have it on the really? inside out because when you I put it... I don't even notice these things. Wait, Let's wait, just be honest. When you put it on, you put it on orange side first this time, which was oh, a okay. first. Got it, got it, it was got a it. first, and I look over, and it's flipped up inside out. Got it, got it. No big deal. He's still modeling it. Uh, so That's we have great. that one, plus a Celebrate 8 Purple Neck Gator honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks. They're not CDC approved, but they are perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your teams and being respectful to those around you. Get your masks right now at PressBox online.com slash mask that's pressboxonline.com slash masks to get yours now Zach the Ravens had a nice win over the Cowboys ran for 294 yards uh, which was uh, nine yards more than they ran for in any game at any point in their 14 and 2 uh, 2019 campaign 
Lamar Jackson looked like he looks like the MVP. Yeah, he he's looked and, and look. It, it's weird to say that because he threw for 107 yards and he threw that interception, which everybody criticized Marquise Brown. And yeah, he should have caught the ball, but it wasn't a great decision. It, it wasn't a great decision. It was on. It was a third down play that wasn't going to get a first down, even if he did catch it. The guy had, was already had him wrapped up before the ball even got there. there. It was borderline pass interference, but he's blanketed in coverage. There's a guy right behind him who ended up picking the pass off. Wasn't a great decision by Lamar, but still, 107 yards, two touchdowns, ran for 94 yards. What I noticed in this game is that he seemed more decisive with his runs. And we saw with with Robert Griffin III against the Steelers the week before that the game plan called for him to just, if, if the first read's not there, get on your horse, get out of there. And we saw that with Lamar. In this game. And I expected him. I told my buddy he was going to run for 120 yards. He ran for 94. And that long 40, that long 37-yard touchdown run. He has the same touchdown run against all three NFC team East teams that he's faced this year, by the way. Um, to me, it looked like he was more decisive on when to run, run the ball. Was able to pick up first downs with relative ease like he did last year. A lot of times we've seen him bottled up this year. Uh, and kind of hesitant of where he was going to go. Didn't see that against the Cowboys. Now the Cowboys, you might as well be playing playing a JV squad as far as their 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 rush defense is. They're not good. They're not good. Um, so I liked what I saw from that. I liked them getting the ball to Dobbins, even though he didn't get it till twenty minutes into the game, real time, not game time. Um, I don't have an issue with Mark Ingram getting carries. A, a lot of people do. You're one of them. I have an issue with him getting starts and more carries than more productive backs. I love Mark Ingram. I think he's great for this team. I love what he did last year, over 1,200 all-purpose yards. Uh, He scored 15 touchdowns. He's not the same player this year. It has to do with injuries and COVID and all that. I don't mind him getting touches, but I I think he should be the third back on this team right now. Yeah, I agree. I think I brought this point up the other day, but I think if you look at some of the teams who have the really high-production run games – we look at the Vikings. You can look at the Browns with Nick Chubb. You can, you know, Vikings with Dalvin Cook, Titans with Derrick Henry. They keep their starting back in for eighty percent of the snaps, eighty-five percent, maybe even ninety, depending on some of these teams. I mean, Derrick Henry's in the game the whole game, so I, I think that's what the Ravens kind of have to do with J.K. Dobbins because every time J.K. Dobbins is on the field, he's getting five or six yards at least. He's averaging 5.4 yards per carry. That's second in the NFL right now. This is a guy who needs to be on the field 70-80% of the time and then use Gus Edwards on those short-yarded situations, blast it through. Okay, give you know maybe give Mark Ingram a few carries, but don't give him a screen pass. Please don't give him any screen passes. Those don't work with him. He's just not he doesn't have the same burst this year. So, get JK Dobbins the ball. He's clearly one of your best playmakers, if not your best, you know, outside of Lamar Jackson, of course. So, this is a guy who's just got to be on, on the field more, and I think you saw it in, in what he can do. He ran for almost 100 yards. You know, Gus Edwards ran for more than 100 yards. When you pair those two guys up and you just let them run free and then pair that with Lamar Jackson's run game, which has to be as good as it was against the Cowboys, I think that's the recipe for winning. And when Lamar Jackson throws for 107 yards, that's about as good as you, you, the Ravens can get. That is where they're at their best, in my opinion. You look at J.K. Dobbins. I was screaming, get him on the field. Yeah, exactly. I I, I, I put out a tweet at 8.26 on on Tuesday night that said, 
Am I missing something regarding Dobbins? He has not set foot on the field. Literally, as I'm hitting send tweet, he gets his first carry. And guess what? 18 yards. 18. Yep. 18 yards on his first carry. Ended the game. I think he had 11 carries for 70 yards. Yeah, and it was like 70-something. Yeah. 72 yards, and he, had, and he had the touchdown. Um, but they didn't get him involved until there were three minutes left in the first quarter. And this is a guy, they said, uh, uh, somebody po- posted it. If he had as many carries as James Robinson in Jacksonville, the other uh, another great standout rookie running back, he'd be third in the NFL in rushing behind only Dalvin Cook and Derrick Henry. Uh, J.K. Dobbins is, next to Lamar Jackson, the best player on this team offensively. He might be, at, he, at his position, he might be better than Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson is dynamic, and he's an MVP um, makes a lot of plays with his legs, makes plays with his arm when he needs to. J.K. Dobbins may be the best all-around player on this Ravens offense, and he needs to be the feature back. I agree, 78 to 80% of the offensive snaps. Gus Edwards, seven carries, 101 yards. Seemed like he was breaking off runs for 25 yards a clip all night long. I mean, that's ridiculous numbers. That it, is incredible amount of yards per carry. It's absolutely insane. When you look against the Steelers, he had nine carries for 10 yards, and I was questioning whether or not he's able to be a feature back. He shut my mouth. Seven carries, 101 yards. That was that was bananas. Um, look, look. if this Ravens running game is back, they were third in the NFL in rushing going into that game. Now they're first. If this Ravens, game, this Ravens running game is back, I have a lot more confidence going into Monday night against the Browns than I did after watching the Browns play the Titans. Ravens need to control the ball, control the clock. Um, Andrews is going to be back. Snead is going to be back. Des Bryant, he tested negative now three times for COVID. Uh, he hasn't practiced. Uh, so uh, I doubt that he plays on Monday night. But the Ravens are getting healthy at the right time. They have, you don't want to say any game's a cakewalk, but they have a pretty cake schedule the last three weeks. This is their last big test. And this is a game they have to win. This might be the season right Yeah, here. this is a game that they, they, they could go 10-6 and, and, and make the playoffs. They, they still could. But if you really want to solidify that, you got to win on Monday night. So with that in mind, I usually pick first. I'm going to let you do your, uh, your, your prediction for this game. All right, I say the Ravens are going to score 37. I think they're going to have an amazing offensive night. They're going to go off and have one of the best. I mean, they scored 38 the first time against the Browns. Browns defense, not that great. I'm going to say the Browns are going to score 28. So 37 to 28 is my score for this game. All right, well, the Ravens are finally pretty much fully healthy. Uh, I don't know if Jimmy Jimmy Smith's been a limited participant. I think I don't know if he's going to be back to play against the Browns. Jimmy Smith makes that makes that off makes that defense that much better. Uh, I, when they played the Steelers, he was the eighth ranked cornerback in the NFL, and they have him playing safety too. He is somebody posted on Twitter, and I agree. He is the glue of that defense. They have Calais Campbell back, Brandon Williams back. They both made some big plays on uh, Tuesday night. Derek Wolf's having a great season. I heard rumors that they're uh, in the extension talks with Derek Wolf right now. Ravens defense is back. That Browns uh, running game can run on anybody, though. Uh, yep. You really need a healthy Calais Campbell and Brandon Williams, and you don't know how hampered they still are. William, um, <coughs> excuse me. Calais Campbell looks slow. It, it, like he was still really bothered, but and I get it. Six foot eight, three hundred pounds. I mean, there's a reason they put down horses when they break their legs. This is a big dude on running on a bad ankle. I, I so I get why he looks slow. They're gonna have a hard time stopping that running game 
I don't think Baker is the Baker that we saw last week. I don't think he's the Baker that we saw week one. I think he's somewhere in the middle. Ravens need to win this. They need it more than the Browns need it. And the Ravens know what they're up against. Ravens 31, Browns 28. Ravens 31, Browns 28. That's what I'm going with. Three-point victory right. by, by the Ravens. Go into the last three games of the season at 8-5 and five with an opportunity to go 11-5 and five and make their way into the playoffs. I also think the Steelers are going to lose on Sunday night to the Bills. And if the season ends with the Steelers at 14-2 and two and the Chiefs at 15-1, uh, and one, the Steelers would be the two seed. The, the Chiefs would get the bye. And if the Ravens are the seven seed, guess who the Ravens would play in the wild card round? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh Steelers. That's what I'm looking for. Ravens 31, Browns 28. Guys, we got to get out of here. Uh, we will talk to you next week. We do not have a show the day after Christmas on December 26th, two weeks from now, so be prepared for that. Uh, we got to get out of here. Thanks for tuning in. See ya!